Heavy Cardboard, episode 146, Clinic Deluxe. Coming to you from, apparently, Tornado Alley here in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm JT. All right. So, JT, you and I have known each other for for a minute, and uh, I, I'm excited to finally have you on the show, man. So, thanks for coming on. You bet. It's good to be here. Yeah, I. Th- this is cool. Now, the thing is, whenever I think of you, I think of you predominantly as a war gamer. But I know that that's really you catch me off guard when you're like, "Oh yeah, I can't wait to play in something that isn't a war game." And I'm like, "Wait, what?" Like I forget that you actually are more of an omni gamer than I think of you as. That is true. Um, I-, I think that's. <sighs> I think that that's a compliment for me, at least. I, I enjoy the fact that you think of me as a war gamer, but I, I do play almost everything. I mean, if you looked at my top five favorite two-player games, this is how I would describe myself. It's Combat Commander, 1960, Star Wars Rebellion, Wirsin Das Volk, and Sekigahara. So it, that's a, a smattering of games across the spectrum. So uh, I, I think that's a pretty fair characterization to say Omni Gamer, but I do have a special place in my heart for those war games. So, okay, give give folks now, obviously they have context now, at least. But how did you get into the hobby? Like why and how did you end up slanting towards war games yet? Not entirely, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So I always been a fan of games of some sort. So I grew up in Salt Lake City and when I was younger in my elementary school and and junior high days, I loved playing Monopoly Risk, Castle Risk, later got into some Axis and Allies, um, had some friends that we would play uh, the whole campaign of Hero Quest and uh, Battle Masters, which was kind of a, a form of a tabletop miniatures game. And I just loved playing those games. And that's all that really I really had access to at that age. We didn't have BGG, obviously. And I took what I could find at Toys R Us. Um, and, and I played those as often as I could. But I had a real uh, deficit of people that were willing to play those kind of games with me. And so I just got out of out of the hobby, out of the habit. As soon as I got into my later years in high school and then college, uh, I ended up going to the University of Utah and got degrees in computer science and computer engineering. And every once in a while, I would see a group of people playing a game on a table and and I would be intrigued, but I just, I didn't have the time and I just didn't know them well enough to really go over and interact with them very much. Uh, and so it just stayed out of the limelight in my life for quite a while. Um, I ended up moving out to California and uh, I worked as an engineer at the laboratories out in Livermore uh, doing nuclear weapon design and then decided to do a complete 180 in my career and go to law school. So I stayed out in the Bay Area, went to to Stanford for law school. And while I was in law school, uh, another family in our neighborhood invited my family over to dinner with them. And as we were waiting for the food to be ready, uh, the husband said, hey, would you like to play a game? And I said, sure. It sounds a little weird, but I like games. And we pulled out this <laughs> <laughs> we pulled out this game, just he and I, and we played uh, and I don't even know what the game was called. It was like a pirate cove kind of game. It had a little tunnel that you were maneuvering your uh, set of five pirates through. And you were trying to be the first one to emerge with all of your pirates on the other end. And we played that. And, and it's just 
like relit that fire in me, that little <laughs> stupid game that we played. And we finished the game and I, I said, man, that was really fun. I appreciate that. I, I miss gaming like this. And he said, oh man, if you like games, <laughs> just wait, you've got to see this one. My wife just got me for my birthday. And he comes out with his box and says, look at all this stuff. And it's Agricola. Yes. And so right there, I, I looked at that and I just thought, I've got to play this. I have to play Subsistence this. Subsistence farming in the Middle Ages? I'm in. Yes, right. absolutely. All the wood and all the cardboard. Uh, so we ended up playing that the next week. And uh, I searched for Agricola online. And sure enough, like most people, the first thing you see is, is BGG. And down the rabbit hole I went. So my first purchases from Amazon were uh, Agricola. I needed my own copy, of course. Of course. And uh, Agricola in Puerto Rico. And I followed those up quickly with La Havre, uh, Age of Steam. This was back in 2011. Uh, Power Grid. And and just took off from there. So I dove right in the deep end of heavy Euro gaming, I would say. Um, and, and and all classics, like all like legitimately fantastic games right there. So true. Well done, you there. Yeah, it's, I mean, who knows? When you buy an album in 2020, do you think in 10 years, are people going to look back at this album and say it's a classic? But I can look back at all those games almost 10 years ago now and say they're all in my collection still, and I play them. And rightfully so. Yeah, no doubt. That's that's amazing. All right. Yeah. And then, so from there, how did it grow into, uh, well, call it war games, historical simulations, whatever you want to word it? Yeah, it, it, I, I would say wargaming, but more accurately, uh, conflict simulations. And I got into this because I was looking for uh, a solitaire game. I didn't when I graduated from law school, I moved to Denver and left my game group behind in California. And I just had withdrawal and I didn't know anyone here that played games at all. And um, I, I asked around a little bit, but I didn't put too much effort into it. And I thought, I still want to be playing these. And so I looked for games that you could play solitaire. And uh, somebody recommended a game that had been published by GMT called Labyrinth. And this was uh, one of Volko Runke's designs that focused on the war and terror, war on terror, excuse me. And it had a solo bot that would play the side of the jihadists. And I thought, well, this sounds awesome. I can just play this solo. Um, and so I went on GMT's website and I ended up picking that up. And then I got uh, uh, in one of their sales, I ended up getting Andy and Abyss, which is a coin game. And uh, if you're familiar with coin games, they have bot flowcharts that can play each of the four factions in those games. And so I started playing through those, but I knew nothing about um, the the conflict in Colombia that was the subject of Andy and Abyss. And so I started doing some research on it and started reading some of the bibliography in the playbook and reading some of the, uh, the outside sources that are recommended. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved learning about the conflict and then being able to play that conflict out in a way that made sense in a board game. Uh, and particularly the way that they use these cards to have events that can be played out in favor of, of multiple factions, depending on how you want history to go. And so that idea of being able to not only relive history through a game, but also rewrite it by the way the game plays out was just fascinating to me. And uh, that's what really gets me excited about games more than anything is being able to couple that gaming experience with a real world scenario that I get to learn about historically or something that's going on now that I can look at and model in a game and uh, learn about it in a way that you really can't in any other way. So uh, recently, one of the games I've been playing was uh, Fields of Despair. It's a block war game that models the Western Front 
in World War One. World War One. Yep. Between the Germans and the French, and uh, it, it's something that I knew about just from my high school history days. Uh, so I knew the basics, but I didn't know all the details. And so I've been listening to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History on uh-huh. World War One. <laughs> yep. And it's just it's enthralling. It's it's told in a way that is better than uh, you know any movie you're going to watch about it. And to feel, uh, you know, to be able to play out what's going on in the podcast you're listening to on the board game is is awesome. Uh, I mean, one more example is Colonial Twilight, another coin game. And I had played all the coin games up till Colonial Twilight. And I was a little hesitant to get that one because I didn't even know there was a French-Algerian war. I'll be honest. Yeah, I didn't either until until I actually got ready to stream that and everything. I started watching and, and reading up on it, completely ignorant about that event or that conflict, if you will. Yeah. And, and I thought, do I really want to get into a game that I don't know anything about? And that's always a good thing. I think for me, uh, I ended up getting a, a book called the savage war of peace and it runs through that entire conflict and it's, it's incredible. And it makes you really, uh, understand both sides. And when you have that kind of a context and you play the game and you pull out cards, like, um, I won't get into any of the specifics of the cards, but the cards all start to make sense. All the events and you see them, you think, oh, man, I, I read about this. This is crazy that this happened. Uh, and you can really get a feel for how that game tries to model not only the conflict, but how each side is supposed to feel about the conflict. And I think that's just fascinating. So um, as you said, I still play a lot of Euro games because that's what my gaming group likes to play. Um, and, and I think they're a lot easier to get to the table for the same reason. They're easier for you to stream. I think war games have a lot of overhead, both in terms of uh, experience required to play them well and rules overhead and just the time commitment it takes to play some of them. So I would say that uh, most of my games that I end up playing with my kids or with my game group are going to be Euro style games. But, you know, my original love now is going to be these conflict simulations because I just love the way they they suck you in and teach you something. I, I, that you, it, it, that's my story essentially. Um, it, the only difference on mine is I actually was listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history about World War One and you know the Battle of like Verdun and all of that, and that got me turned on to Fields of Despair. So I went about it in the opposite direction, but that's the exact thing that I love specifically about war games is either the game can get you in the, interested in the history or the history knowing about the history can get you interested in the in the uh conflict sim, uh, simulation and it's amazing and i have my own little story about my first ever coin game was andy and abyss as well and i knew really nothing about anything that historically you know that was going on and that was at the time that was the most recent uh of the of the coin games like the uh Mm -hmm. distant plane didn't exist yet and so this was the closest thing to current times that existed and so my friends at the time and they were like hey you want to play that and i was like yeah let's bust this out and you know, you're fumbling your way through it and everything, and it it was okay, but what really kind of hooked me with it was later that week, completely out of the blue, I'm reading some news feed online, and I read about the FARC gorillas, and I was like, wait, what? I just... 
game. What now? Wow. I know right? who this and, is. Right. Exactly. And all of a sudden now I'm like, oh, okay. Now I'm in. Now I'm, I, I just, it, that, the way that can merge between your thirst for the, the knowledge of the history of things or of the topic it can merge and make it a more interactive learning experience. And I love a learning about history. So war games make a lot of sense. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And it's funny because they, they teach you in a way that you become an expert on these little moments in history that a lot of people are not going to have any, any knowledge of. So the number of weird conversations I've had where I will talk about the, uh, the seven years war or the French Algerian war. And someone will say, how do you know anything about this? And I say, well, I play this game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people are like, wait, there's a war or there's a, there's a board game about that. And be like, yeah, it's not all monopoly and risk. And, mm-hmm. Et cetera, et you have to dig That's really awesome. deep behind the shelf at, at Target and you'll find it. <laughs> right. It's way <laughs> back there. But I want to double back to something that I had no idea about regarding your, your past. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. Nuclear weapon design? Okay. I realize obviously you can't talk about everything given the topic, but come on. You've got to expound a little bit about that because really? Yes. Like that's cool. Uh, it was it was an incredible job. It was a lot of fun. Um, so, like I said, I graduated with degrees in computer science and electrical engineering, and then I got a master's in electrical engineering, and went to work at the Sandia National Labs in Livermore. And the nuclear weapon complex, as far as the design of weapons goes, has Sandia as a laboratory that designs the electronics and all of the engineering around it, and then the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in Livermore, and and the Los Alamos Laboratory down in New Mexico, and they design the physics package, which is everything. All of these exotic materials, the plutonium, uranium, the core, uh, and then we design everything that goes around it. And so I was specifically involved in the use control systems. So if you ever watch any any movie that has to do with a nuclear weapon, they get this part entirely wrong. But think of the the codes that someone is entering into the weapon to, to enable it uh, to be launched or to be detonated. Uh, we dealt with that. And that's about as much as I can say in a general sense. But the only movie I've ever seen that gets it right is a movie from, I think it was 1995, called Crimson Tide. Yep, I've seen that. Okay. Yeah, Denzel Washington, uh, Gene Hackman on a submarine. And they they do have the two sets of codes in the safe. They unlock the launch. That actually is correct. If you want to see the movie that gets it worse than any movie I've ever seen is a movie called Broken Arrow from that same time era (laughs) (laughs) with Christian Slater and John Travolta. Uh, If you want to know how nuclear weapons are absolutely not handled, uh, that's the best movie to watch. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is this is amazing. Like it, it's funny, late at night or whatever. You know, you're just you're bored. Whatever. You're killing time. You can't sleep. Whatever. Flipping through the channel. The other night, I got stuck watching Armageddon again. Just you know how sometimes you just end up on movies and watching them. You know, uh, the way they they had to go and disarm the uh, the remote detonate device there on the asteroid. And I was like. I can't imagine that's actually how that plays out. I don't think that's really how that works. And well, now I'm talking to somebody that probably would know a thing or two about that. That is true. And and Armageddon is my wife's favorite movie. So anytime that's on, we're going to watch it. (laughs) Does it make you cringe then whenever whenever those type of scenes come up? It it does. And I used to try and explain to people what was wrong with it. (laughs) 
and they hate it when I ruin the movie like that. <laughs> yep. Uh, it works the same for me when it comes to uh, jet aircraft and uh, avionics mm-hmm. and like the, the heads up displays and the various displays in the cockpits. And I was just like, no, it's wrong because, and I've learned to just shut up and enjoy the movie. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I will say, my claim to fame, um, I was on a team for about a year. We just we went all around the nuclear weapon complex. We were looking at modernizing certain weapon systems. Uh, and so I, I went on a submarine. I went uh, out to Whiteman Air Force Base and was, uh, you know, did a lot of work on the uh, the B-2 stealth bombers. Uh, got in the cockpit of one. That was the closest they would let me come because uh, prior to that, we had gone down and, and been able to participate in the B2 simulator, the flight simulator, which is a, a big cockpit that you walk into and it's it's got hydraulics on it that move it around. Uh, and it's just like a flight simulator that you would play back on the old DOS computers when you were younger. <laughs> yeah, but uh, a, a little bit more advanced. A little better. <laughs> and I sat down and, and the guy tried to tell me how to fly the plane a little bit. And so we, we started to take off and uh, the controls are very... They have a delay in their reaction, obviously. And I don't know anything about flying a plane, but when you you turn the handle one direction, it takes a second for the, the plane to react, especially when you're dealing with a giant flying wing, which is what the B-2 is. Right. Uh, and so I started to kind of drift one direction and I started to to try and turn back the other direction to compensate. And it wasn't turning as fast as I thought. It doesn't react like a car. And so I turned even harder. And all of a sudden you see the screen just start to turn sideways and goes red. And the guy that was in there with me said, that is a record. That's the fastest, <laughs> the fastest anyone has ever destroyed a $2 billion aircraft. Well, you know, 15 seconds of fame. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so we were, we were looking at the controls um, in the cockpit for the, the, the way that you would unlock a weapon if they were going to drop, for instance, like a, a B-61 or a B-80 uh, bomb. Uh, we were looking at those and, and one of the guys who had been in the simulator said, Hey, watch out for this guy. Don't let him anywhere near the controls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tongue firmly planted in cheek, but still you're like, really? Yep. Really? You had to, you had to go there, huh? Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks you. buddy. Right. Uh, for me, I've never been in a cockpit of that. I I've seen the underside of a B one B bomber. Mm-hmm. Um, never been inside, but the probably the coolest one for me um, was being being able to sit in the cockpit of a SU twenty seven, a MiG uh, for the Hungarian Air Force, and that was. That's a cool aircraft. Wow. I used to work on F-18s. And so those, I mean, they're cool. Don't get me wrong. But like I saw them every day of my life while I was in the Marine Corps. So it becomes, you know, blasé. But being able to sit in the cockpit of a MiG. Okay. That was, that was pretty cool. That is awesome. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. That's, that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating history there. That's a really cool, I mean, I can't imagine JT when he's 10 years old is going, you know what I want to do when I grow up. And, and I mean, that's just, that's, that's just a cool story. Yeah. I can tell you a 10 year old JT was thinking, I want to play more of this risk game when I grow up. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And here you are. There you go. That's awesome, man. That's really good stuff. Uh, yeah, very cool. Well, I'm glad you made it onto the show and, and volunteered to, uh, to 
basically kind of uh, be the first guest host when we jumpstart back here with the podcast. So thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always loved these podcasts. I remember uh, about four, maybe five years ago, we had taken the first vacation. Uh, and you don't get a lot of vacation time as an attorney. But my wife and I had taken our first vacation to Hawaii without our kids. Every other vacation our kids had come with and we just went by ourselves. And it was fantastic because we just slept in and we did nothing and we sat on the beach and yeah, I didn't want to do anything. And it was everything I dreamed it would be. And All the parents out there are just kind of <laughs> listening to their radio and just shaking their head like, I hate you a little, but I also understand that. Yes. Yep. And I, I was laying on the beach and I thought, I need a new game. And I started looking for, uh, just looking around and I, I saw someone look, uh, excuse me, I saw somebody who had uh, recommended a game on uh, BGG and they said, I heard about it on this podcast. And I thought, wow, there are podcasts that talk about games. <laughs> and I searched yep. for heavy games podcast and up came heavy cardboard. And I think there were maybe four episodes. And so that day on the beach, I listened to Madeira and uh, I think Lahav and a couple others that were games that I was familiar with at least and, and have been listening ever since. Well, I, I appreciate you persevering uh, because some of those early episodes were rough audio wise. So I certainly appreciate that. And uh, yeah, now that now that uh, we're kind of revitalizing the podcast a little, I, it's something I'm excited to be excited about again, as opposed to it being you and I were t uh, a chore, I guess you and I were talking before we started recording how there are certain things in life that, you know, it's just really hard to get you reach a certain point and you're just like uh anything but that i would rather literally i'd rather do just about anything but do that and that's where i was getting with the podcast so yeah i'm excited about it again and that's refreshing that feels good so speaking of you know gaming podcasts and all that what you've been playing recently and since you and i are both now i guess kind of like big into solo games we'll split it up multiplayer plays you know things you've been playing in solo so what you've been playing multiplayer recently so multiplayer just prior to the whole pandemic shutdown uh, we've been playing a lot of clinic to be honest um and then we've been trying to play a little bit on tabletopia i don't play tabletop simulator uh, I do play Vassal when I can for some of these GMT games and war games, uh, but primarily we've been using Tabletopia, and we have been playing a lot of Australia, pronounced with a, a Z. I don't know if I can do that correctly. Australia? I, I think so. The Martin Wallace one, the right? Martin Wallace game. Uh, and my game group has really, they've loved it uh, enough that I went out of town and another guy in the group went and bought the game so that he could play it while I was gone with their wives. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's right. it's got a real neat multiplayer dynamic to it. Uh, you're fighting the game, but you're also fighting each other, and you're trying to steer these these zombies that are living. And I know it's Cthulhu, but we just refer to them as zombies because we don't know anything about Lovecraft. Um, but there's these zombies that are are living and coming back from underground in Australia, and you are at the same time are trying to farm and get minerals and and do what you would normally do in any kind of farming game. Until the zombies start coming for you. And it's it's awesome to be able to route zombies towards other people. Um, it, it, there's a lot of screwage that goes on in that game. And, and we really have liked it a lot. Um, another game that, that I've played a lot recently. And this is with my kids. Because they are my gaming group. Uh, while we were on lockdown. Uh, my 8-year-old son and I. We got into Command & Colors Ancients. 
Yes, raising them right, right there, JT. Yes, and he's surprisingly good at it. We finished. We ended up playing, I think, twenty-two games total, and he finished uh, winning more than well, not quite more than half. He was a little less than half, I should say, and it was impressive. He really picked it up quickly. But man, that is a fun system. I I just appreciate so much that you can set that thing up and play it in an hour. And it's it's as deep as you want it to be. I think you can really get into the deck and how you should build your hand and when you want to execute your movements and your attacks. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal system that there's a reason that there are so many expansions and so many inversions of it. And I'm glad that it took the, the pandemic to really get it to the table and and fall in love with it a little bit. That's really cool. And it's it's definitely one of those games that is kind of like what you said. It's approachable, like you can play it with your eight-year-old son, or you can dive deep in it and really get into, you know, the hand management aspect of it. And yeah, and and plus, I mean, I think it's awesome. I don't know how 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 deep into the history uh, the eight-year-old goes with this, but I think it's cool that you know you get to explain the way that you know uh, conflicts used to happen and how war was made back in ancient times. And you know, hey, if you're big into Napoleonics, there's that. Mm-hmm. If you want Roman, you have this. It's yeah, I I think it's a really cool system as well. Yeah, and awesome to hear that uh, he was competitive. That's good stuff. He was frustratingly competitive, I'll say. <laughs> he's, but that's what you want, right? He is. And, and he's a really bright kid. He's in second grade, but he's he has finished the third grade curriculum for math and reading. And so we're having a hard time keeping him entertained with things. And so I, I gave him this little puzzle game yesterday um, called Rush Hour. that We've just had sitting on the table for years that it has different puzzles you put together and try and maneuver cars out of the puzzle. And there are 40 scenarios that you can play. And he texted me today and said, Hey, I'm on number 31. So I don't know what to do with him. Wow. That's, that's really, that's awesome. I mean, hmm, okay. Take this the right way. Uh, but Jess and I had a conversation the other day about how, uh, we we have a dog now, and his name's Cooper. And Cooper isn't the smartest dog. He's a bit derpy at times. And Jess made the comment like, you know, you got to be careful. You don't want a dog that's too smart because then that's when trouble begins because they can, you know, they can think their way through things. And it sounds like, you know, there's a 40-year-old or an 8-year-old going on 40 and he has a voracious appetite and now the biggest the biggest fear you probably have is boredom for him how do you keep him entertained and how do you keep his mind engaged right uh, that's exactly it and and it's funny cuz another game we've been playing with him is marvel champions the uh, the living card game from fantasy flight and he gets into that like crazy and i will wake up in the morning and he'll have been up for 2 hours he's also kind of a football fanatic so he's watching every nfl rerun that we can possibly find on our dvr and i'll get up and and he'll have been up from six to eight watching uh, a football game and making his own uh marvel champion decks so (laughs) it's it is really hard to keep him entertained with stuff but unfortunately he's a really good kid so we don't haven't worried about him too much that's awesome man um one thing i would definitely recommend just as an aside is the uh the solo engineer workbook for tramways i bet you that would keep him entertained for 
you know, four or five hours. You know what? I have that here in my drawer, and I have not, <laughs> I haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, I, I did a stream of it, and I was like, this is harder than it probably should be for me, me doing one this early in it. So yeah, I think he'll, uh, I think he'd enjoy that. So there you go. Yeah. So. Uh, anyway, Marvel Champions, that's another game I've been playing with him. My game group, we just got back together in the last few weeks. We played a game of Terraforming Mars, which is one of our favorites. Uh, I am really excited for the the Kickstarter with all of the little 3D pieces to come out. I think that's going to be fantastic. Um, it really does help. I'm not going to lie. I do not love Terraforming Mars. I enjoy it. It's fine. It's not something that I'm ever chomping at the bit to to play however we have a couple folks in our in, in uh, uh, our group here we have jeff and we have scott who have basically that plus right i mean they they spent you know on who knows how much money on getting these really amazing 3d it, it brings the game to life and you know it's funny i used to you know make jokes about oh you know plastic dolls and minis and all but it does help with the enjoyment of the game. I will admit that. So, yeah, I totally get that now. It I does. Really do. and, and I saw that stream and I thought, I have to have those. <laughs> and then I'm looking them up online. And then just a few weeks later, they announced the Kickstarter. And I thought, this is perfect. So uh, there you go. All right. I am, I am all in on that. Um, we love Terraforming Mars. And in fact, one of the criticisms I think I've heard fairly often is that it seems to drag at the end and overstay its welcome. And we've experienced just the opposite that those last four turns, everything is just high speed and it's just a race to get things on the board before somebody else does. And uh, anyway, we, we really like that game a lot. And you know, what I look for in a game is, is a couple things. I want there to be hard decisions on each turn. I don't want, I don't like a game that is so strategic that you can be on autopilot for a few turns and just say, here's what I'm doing. And I know what I'm going to do the next three turns. So I don't have to think until that happens. Um, I like each term to have, have a lot of difficulty to it where I'm agonizing over that decision. And I think that games that have a good strategic tactical mix of short-term decision-making and a long-term strategy that you have to try and play out really fit that bill well. And I like I like games that have a puzzle to them, some sort of puzzle aspect where I'm trying to figure out how to make something work. I want something to work and I have to figure out how to do it. Um, and then finally, I like something that that builds on something that there's emergent gameplay where you're building an engine or a, you know, a farm or whatever it is. So at the end of the game, you can say, look what I built. And your turns are more exciting at the end of the game than they were at the beginning. Um, and then I like I like a good theme. And Terraforming Mars has it. And uh, I, I, I'll i be honest, for the listeners of the, the podcast, uh, you'll know what I mean here. But I aspired early on to be a theme shmeme kind of guy. I, <laughs> I wanted it to be all about the pod, all about the mechanics of the game. And deep down, I am just not. I like a good theme. Uh, there, no, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, for me... I've actually come around a bit on that to where it used to be like I just didn't care about the theme whatsoever. Whereas now I and I I mean, maybe I've always been like this to a degree, but I feel like it's gotten stronger that a game should have a strong theme that ties in with the game and that's only going to enhance the gameplay. Yeah. Right? And and yeah, so I, I you know, I'm I don't blame you at all. I mean, Star Wars Rebellion is one of my favorite two-player games, and that is all about the theme. 
I want to capture Luke Skywalker and have him use the Darth Star, Death Star to uh, destroy the Rebel base. Uh, it's it's the that story got that, dark quick, JT. I'm just saying <laughs> that got really, really dark. I always end up playing the Empire in that game for some reason. I can't imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only other games I'll mention that we've been playing, uh, I did play Fields of Despair a bit. I've been looking for that game for a while and finally got a copy of it. That's the World War One block war game. And then the other one that's one of my my favorites of the last year is Nevsky, which is uh, another another Volko Runki design that is uh, all about the logistics of, of medieval warfare. And uh, that is a long, hard game to play, but it's it's worth it. I unfortunately, and and this is going to come into play when when we talk about the uh, the Golden Elephant Award here. Well, if for in our real time here later on this week, uh, unfortunately, Nevsky came to the forefront for me and the group and everything right literally a week before quarantine and everything locked down. And I have not been able to play Nevsky at all, but I am really intrigued by that game so i have you been enjoying it though i have been enjoying it for the reasons that i like war games it's hard and it simulates what happened very well uh the logistics are are right at the forefront of that game you've got to plan everything very carefully and you've got to plan contingencies because there are random events that come up and uh i do like the the way the battles play out you have each of these lords that are uh kind of summoning all of their their soldiers to come and fight for you and you know what if you lose a battle too badly they get frustrated and they go home or if you can't feed them or pay them they go home and then they stay out of the battle for the next two rounds and you have to wait until they decide to come back and be your friend again and uh, it's it's quite realistic from what i understand uh but it it can also be frustrating and my only complaint with the game is that it is really long Uh, if you want to play the full campaign uh, which is I think it would make it a good GEA candidate, Golden Elephant Award candidate, if you play the full game. Uh, some of the smaller scenarios, I think, really don't do it justice. Um, I would I would say the same thing about a game that was nominated a few years ago uh, called Cataclysm, that when you play that whole game, it's fantastic. But playing the smaller scenarios, I think you lose a lot of what makes it great. And for... Uh, you to be able to play that full scenario, it takes like eight hours. So right. it's, the, the, it's a hard the, one. I, I'm the type that enjoys like a slow burn. Like I don't mind the the uh, the the slow burn uh, buildup for a game like that. And and yeah, I I totally understand that. But yep. once we're actually back to gaming in person, um, I definitely know I have folks here locally that are that are down for to dive into Nevsky. So I'm really looking forward to that. Just unfortunately the timing of when the pandemic hit, just the world happened. So, um, and I also see in the notes here, you mentioned Rurik. How are you enjoying that? I forgot about Rurik. So we played that on tabletopia. I I bought that game because uh, you did an unboxing of it. Thanks a lot. I did. I did. Um, My pocketbook appreciated that one. Uh, (laughs) Hey, all I did was show it. I was like, hey, this came in the mail. Let's go ahead and bust out an unboxing for yeah. it. And Boy, an area control game with a bunch of minis. I don't know why I would be so tempted by that. Um, <laughs> I, I love those kind of games. My favorite game a couple of years ago was Rising Sun. Um, and it wasn't because of the minis. I love the, the battle mechanic in that where you're blind bidding behind your screen as to what you're going to do. And uh, Yeah, that, that mechanism was the game to me. And oh. yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I mean, that uh, is a little off topic, but that game, 
there was it came down to one final battle as to who was going to win that game and it, me and me and the guy across the table and it was just we revealed our screens and i just I fell out of my chair i couldn't believe what he'd done and he won it it was something i was not expecting and it was it was just a great it was a great moment that I think that game generates. Um, and, and I mean, obviously, because here we are talking about it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that that is what I crave. And I think what all of us or in a lot of ways crave when we play board games are those memorable moments. It, it doesn't matter who won or lost. It's just those moments right there that really exemplify what this amazing hobby is. Yep. So that's good stuff so rurik all right so rurik yeah all i'll say about it it's it's that kind of same uh area control game it's a dudes on a map game but it's got uh, this really neat auction mechanic that helps you or, or that you use to drive what goes on on the board so you're you're putting um your i don't know what they call them your ministers or your pawns out on this this chart where you're selecting your actions and each of them has a certain power rating one through five and that determines the order in which they're resolved later in the action round uh but where you place them is going to also determine the type of action so like if i wanted to attack someone the top space will be have two attack icon or three attack icons the next space will have two the next space will have one the then the final space will make me pay a coin to be able to attack and if i put my number one marker on there so that i am going to attack first i put it up at the highest spot but if anyone else puts another marker in that column that has a higher bid than mine a higher power they put it in front of mine and mine scoots down so you're trying to always balance when do i need to take this action versus how powerful do i want that action to be and what are my opponents doing first if i know i've got to move before he attacks me i have to have something there that's going to move first and so the neat thing about it is you can take any of your your uh your pawns that you're putting on that chart and you can add coins to it to up your bid so i can take my one and say you know, he's going to go first, but I'm going to throw five coins on him. So now he's basically a six and you're going to have to add coins on yours if you want to outbid me. Anyway, that that really burns your brain by the end of the game. That last round, you could AP that sucker to death and try and predict what other people are going to do. And still, uh, it can be a little bit crazy. So we really well, enjoyed those meaningful, that yeah, Those meaningful decisions every turn that you had mentioned earlier. It sounds like uh, it's got it in spades. Yep. So that's what I've been playing, and I, I didn't feel bad. I kind of went on for a while on that. No, no. I, it's a board game podcast. You're talking about <laughs> board games. I don't think anyone out there is complaining. I'm not. I'm enjoying this, so you're totally fine. Good, good. Uh, and, and we all watch you on the podcast. What have you been playing? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, pretty much everything I play ends up on the show because my whole life if I'm playing board games revolves around the show. So it's all stuff that pretty much has been on the show in some degree or, or little, uh, little spoiler is going to be on the show. And, uh, so these are everything from Tokyo Tsukiji market, which, uh, from Jordan Draper. And basically, I mean, this is, this is such a ham fisted description, but it's a reimagining, of container it's like container and stuff 
kind of is a is a really shorthand way to put it. And I was very pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed this game because I kept hearing people tell me, oh, you really got to play it. You really got to play it. You really got to play it. And I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'll give it a try. And oh, wow. Yeah, that was really good. So really enjoyed that one. Uh, so Perseverance. You, how, how, oh, would you yeah, compare that? how would you compare it to Container? Is it a replacement container? Is there room yeah, for both see, of those? Yeah, it's different. I mean, okay, first off, the, the footprint <laughs> of both the box and the actual table presence is like comparing apples and giraffes, right? I mean, especially the latest version of Container, the 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 10th anniversary jumbo edition, yeah. which is I mean, it's it's over the top, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. whatever, it's over the top. Whereas uh, Tokyo Tsukiji Market um is damn near a choking hazard, like the box is so small, right? I mean, it's a it's a Jordan Draper box so you know it's one of those really small ones you know it's about if you're familiar with um uh tokyo metro it's that size it's his biggest box size but it's still super tiny and the actual footprint um this was kind of nice for me streaming remotely with three other players and me i was able to not have to stretch too far on the table to move everybody's pieces because it's such a small footprint and it definitely has that whole you know, okay, I'm going to produce this. Someone else had then has to buy it type thing. And then maybe I can buy it back from them. The original thing I produced that kind of chain of events that container does so well, but it's just more because there are different, uh, uh, fish markets. You can go out and go fishing. You have to have licenses for different types of fish. And I use the term fish loosely because there are fish and there are crab and there are all these other different things. You can buy more boats. You can, you know, for to, that allow you to have more space for whenever you go fishing and everything. So long story short, is it a replacement? Eh, I mean, we played with open money, okay, and and this was the one uh, one apprehension that we had about the the game. We as in a group, we've we only played it I think three times. So caveat on that. But with it becoming with it uh, with playing with open money, it became a king make situation there at the end of every one of our games that was a bit of a bummer. Um, however. I know that Jordan recently did a Kickstarter for an expansion, and apparently one of the modules in there adjusts for that or or removes that aspect in some way. Uh, I haven't seen it, so I, I can't speak to it. However, if you played with hidden money, that problem goes away too, right? So it's got a built-in fix for it if you want to. Just with it being on stream, we thought uh, it makes more sense to have it with open money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I, does it replace container? Okay, let me word it this way. You know how apprehensive I am about saying whether something is worth you picking up or not. I will say this. The price tag between the two is significantly different. If I had container, yeah, I think I have a justification for owning both that and container, both Tokyo Tsukiji Market and container. If money were no object, I'd probably still go with container because it's the classic and it's just, it's amazing at what it does. Uh, And I'll be honest, the 10th 
the jumbo edition. I don't care about it being the jumbo aspect, but the the expansion stuff that is in there with the banker and everything, I think adds to the game. So I think I think I would be good with that. But money is an object. Let's be realistic. Um, I if I'd never played container, I'd be happy with Tokyo Tsukiji Market. Um, if I if I could only choose one. Um, it, I mean, realistically, money does matter. So, yeah, I think I think I would definitely recommend it enough to definitely check it out. Um, but I wouldn't wholeheartedly say it's a replacement for it's just it takes something that you are familiar with in a game like Container and makes it its own game. So that was a very long way of explaining that. But there you go. Well, I think it warrants that long of a discussion. Have you ever played uh, Import Export? I have not. I have it, but I haven't gotten to the game itself yet, partially because I've heard that the rule book is less than ideal. And uh, I, I will say that the, the rule book in Tokyo Tsukiji Market definitely has some holes mm-hmm. in it, uh, but but Jordan's responsive plus the, the, the questions are answered on BGG plus. You know what? I did do a full teach and playthrough of it, so there's that. Yeah. But uh, but no, um, on that note, have you played Import Expo? I have played it one time and it failed pretty hard. But I think you hear that same complaint when you play Container, that there are some groups that your first time playing it before you really understand the dynamics of the economic marketplace and how the, the supply and demand works, you really can't get in a stall situation where the game yeah, fails. Yeah, oh, you it, the, that, that player economy can basically break. The players can break the economy in Container. Yes, yep. that is true. And so we, when we played it, we felt like there's something here we want to explore more, but we really screwed it up this time. And we just haven't gotten it back to the table. In fact, I ended up selling my original copy, but then I felt uh, like it's something I wanted back in my collection. So I backed the, the second edition Kickstarter. So I, I expect to get that one soon, but we'll see uh, if we can get that to the table. Now, another okay. game uh, that I've seen you stream that I'll be honest, I backed on Kickstarter is Perseverance. How was that? Uh, surprisingly Better than I expected. And I know that sounds so bad. I know. I know. But here's the thing, right? Like, I love Trickerian. I'll be honest. The first time I played Trickerian, I was really underwhelmed with it. We didn't play it with the Dark Alley expansion, which, in my opinion, it's not an expansion. You need to play it with the Dark Alley. And when I did, oh, I fell in love with that game. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. However, none of their other games have really grab me like an acrony i've yet to play it uh cerebria i've yet to play it they just don't they they just don't scream to me hi you need to play this type thing and perseverance i mean think about who my girlfriend is and you know dinosaurs i mean yeah right uh i and i never i never watch lost and i feel like this is even though i've never seen it I feel like this is kind of like lost the board game. I don't know. I just that's kind of the the feeling I get for this. But so I didn't I really didn't know what to expect when I played it. Um, it's it's, you know, David Turtsey and the whole crew at Mind Clash and everything. And I was like, yeah, they asked me about doing a sponsored live stream of it. And we talked about it. And David had uh, basically convinced me. And I was like, all right, that sounds pretty cool. But I was still kind of apprehensive about it. There you go. So we played it. 
And I really, really, I, I love dice drafting. All right, so there's, I'm, I'm predisposed to want to like that mechanism, and the, it's a really interesting idea on how they're basically taking a brand new IP or a brand new universe, whatever it is you want to call it, and have four games already baked into this uni- universe before the first one is even out there. And I think that's really ambitious and a little audacious, but I don't know that that's a bad thing really either. So the first two episodes are the only two I have any experience with, uh, episode one, episode two, and they uh, have the Kickstarter. I don't know if it's still going or not, but if not, it recently ended and it was really, really successful. And so we did playthroughs of it before the uh, before the Kickstarter started. And I got to be honest with you. Like I said, there is a lot more decision there than I and it's deeper than I expected it to be and I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to as well. Now, that said, it's funny cuz the game the game plays in the right amount of length that it should, that it feels like it doesn't overstay or anything. However, and I think this is a huge compliment but I want to be able to do more stuff in the game, so I want the game to go longer than it actually does, which I think is a really big compliment. Mm-hmm. And episode one is basically taking to where you are, you know, you have these this settlement, and you're trying to fight back the dinosaurs that are going to be invading in your, uh, in your enclave there. And then episode two basically takes everything that's there and then just adds more on top of it and it becomes a you know you have basic they're not tech trees but each of the different characters in the game you can give them special abilities and there's there's a lot of them so every game will play out completely differently and you can the episode one rolls into episode two if you want it to or they're completely standalone games we played them as completely standalone games and i enjoyed that plenty without you know, chaining them in. They're not legacy aspects. They're completely standalone and you can always replay it. And, you know, there's no permanent tearing up cards or anything like that. Like you're changing uh, the universe in a legacy game. But I think, and here's the thing. I think it was smart of Mind Clash to put them both together in the same Kickstarter. And the reason for that is even though they are, somewhat similar episode two builds upon episode one but i'm not always going to want to play episode two there is still going to be a place for episode one for me because it's just a it's bigger like physically it is a big footprint of a game on the uh on episode two episode one's pretty good size episode two is that plus so footprint wise plus there's just so much more added on top that it doesn't require a whole lot of rules overhead difference but it's just the brain burn there i'm not always gonna want that involved of a mind clash experience sometimes i'm going to want the it's not lighter it's just a little bit less yeah everything with episode one so i think that was smart to package them together so that you get both of those options in the same package yep 
and I, I was intrigued by it uh, because it was a mind clash game. And I, I, with you, I love Tracurian. Uh And I haven't played Anachrony, but I'm hoping to at some point. I have never played Cerebria, but it doesn't really look that interesting to me. And, and maybe I'm wrong on that one. But uh, I looked at this one and, and was interested. I, and, and really, they sucked me in when they said, we're going to go with all minis and no standees. So, thought, you know, it's funny that that people were really making a big deal about that. And I was like, doesn't Gloomhaven do that, too? It does. And I hate them. <laughs> OK, well, fair enough. All right. There you go. Uh, uh, it they just it feels weird to have the mix of of minis and standees. And it's a I know it's it's one of those things that people will argue about in the community a lot as to whether. Um, minis add anything to the game or whether they are just chrome that pumps up the price of a game um, but we we really enjoy it and you'll know one day that I have retired and have gone off the deep end when you see me painting all of my minis <laughs> <laughs> that is a uh, that's a hobby in and of itself right there but man some of the painters out there and some of the stuff I, I do not have that skill and I do not have the patience nor, honestly, the want to get into that. But I can appreciate it from afar because the difference between a painted and an unpainted mini is night and day. Some of those are really amazing. Yep. So, but yeah, so Perseverance, I definitely enjoyed them both. Um, and yeah, I think I, I feel pretty confident uh, saying I, I would recommend it. If you enjoy the type of game, like, uh, I mean... It's almost if you if you enjoy David Turtsy's like the 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 way he approaches a game. If you enjoy that and you enjoy the type of just like a, a Tracurian or a Vito Lacerda, I, I feel like all of those have a lot in common to where there's just a lot of stuff going on here and a lot of things that you need to manage and to be aware of and it's not okay, I'm just focusing on this one little thing here. You have to take everything into account. If that's the type of game that you're going to enjoy, then yeah, I think Perseverance is going to appeal to a lot of folks. And like I said, I genuinely enjoyed it. Really did. I don't have to say that. If I thought it sucked, guess what? I can say that and it's okay. So yeah, but I just really enjoyed it. And standees suck for streaming. I will say that. All right, because you have to lay them down and then it doesn't fit right. And ugh. Well, I'm glad to hear that in hindsight since they've uh, already scheduled to take my money. So I'm glad it's All a right. good game. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I, I let's put it this way. Jess watched the stream. She wasn't a part of the games and she was like, uh, yeah, we're going to need to we're going to need to bust out some of those games. Uh huh. Yeah. So that. Yeah, I, I, I think that. And I here's the thing. There are games that after I'm done with them on a show, I'm like, yep, I'm all set. I'm thank thanks. I'm good. Perseverance was not one of those. Yeah, the, both of them, I was like, yeah, I really want to play those some more. So, yeah, I get that. Yep. Good. All right, so moving on. Let's see. Uh, some, some other multiplayer games that I've played. Petrichor. Uh, I recently played that again to, honestly, to refamiliarize Jess with it because she was uh, doing a, a, a girl stampede of it. And really enjoyed that more than I remember enjoying it. And as a two-player experience, that that that's kind of a 
that can get to be a bit nasty. That that really is not a kind game if you want. That is the anti-Rado, I feel like, in a lot of ways. Uh, Petricor, I didn't play the Cows expansion, even though it's here, the, the prototype of it. Um, but I am familiar with it. And yeah, I think... I think adding the the cows expansion adds enough to the game that makes it even more interesting, but is the the right kind of expansion that it doesn't add a whole lot of rules overhead to it, which I'm grateful for. Good. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed Petricor. And then uh a couple others, Pax Viking. Um I can't wait to actually get a copy of that. I am super excited about that game. And it looks nothing like a PAX game, but it plays just like a PAX game. Not that it's similar to any of the other PAX games, but you know you're playing a PAX game when you're playing it. It's just there's a feel to the to the game. I, I, I wish, you know, for somebody that talks for a living, you would think I would be able to eloquently state why a game feels like a PAX game. Um, yes, there's the the market of cards, you know, there's conveyor of that market, and it's all about, uh, you know, multiple uh, win conditions and setting the game up for you to be able to claim that win condition. That's but that that, that isn't the feel of a PAX game. And there's a there, this very much feels like one. And I, it's it's super simple to teach. It's going to be the easiest game. This and PAX Premier 2nd Edition are going to be the two entry level spots, but there's still plenty there, even if you're wanting a meteor game. Um, and yeah, I plus when I sat down and, and talked with uh, Yoon Monker, uh, lead designer uh, on, on PAX Viking, as passionate as he was about his history and his heritage, uh, you know, being, you know, coming from that area of the world, that passion just exudes and it comes through in the game. And yeah, I just, I wanted to hurry up and actually get produced because I want a copy of that. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. And I'm glad that it's, it, it is a real entry point into the series too, along with, with PAX Premier second edition. Like you said, I just, I think there's not a better bang for your buck in heavy gaming than those PAX games. I, I got turned on to those from another podcast that was talking about BIOS Genesis, which I really didn't enjoy as a game. But they were saying something about these these Phil Eklund games, and I thought, what what in the world is this? And uh, so I backed, I think, the Kickstarter for BIOS Genesis, and they had an add-on for PAX Renaissance. And I picked that up on the add-on, and then I found a guy locally here who traded me a copy of Pax Perfuriana. And I think that still is my favorite of all of them. It just, uh, for me, what defines a Pax game is that level of separation between the actions of the player and the win conditions. So, you know, you're trying in Pax Premier, for instance, you're, you're influencing these different factions and who do you have the most influence in who ends up then being the, the dominant faction is how you determine the winner. And it's, it's that level of opacity that, that takes you two or three games to even wrap your mind around how to win the game that I think is so fascinating about those games. And then once you, once you get into it, just the number of cards, the variable setup, I, I would play those games anytime. Yeah. And I'll be honest, Pax Porfiriana is still, I haven't played it, you know, it, it's been a minute, um, but it's still, 
it's still one that I am excited to play if I ever get a chance to play it. Uh, that was the very first PAX game that I ever played, and it still it still holds a special place in my heart. And I really, really enjoy Porfiriana. Just been a long time since I've been able to play it. That said, uh, going back to PAX Viking, here's the cool thing about this game that when I had this explained to me, I was like, okay legitimately this is pretty badass is the variable uh, uh victory conditions so not to go too deep into the description of pax viking but in there there are four different uh victory conditions that whenever you meet them if you play if somebody plays an event you then check the victory conditions but there are four different levels of victory conditions there are i don't remember what they're called but let's just call it like entry level then there's the base game then there's a little bit harder and then there's eklendian which are just stupid hard um and you can actually add multiple levels in the same game. So for instance, going back to your son or any of your daughters or whatever, if they want to play this with you, if they are interested in this, you can set it up to where, okay, these two win conditions, the harder ones are for dad. And you can only win when you've met these two. Whereas for the youngsters, these two, you can do. And it, it scales the game naturally that way. And I think that's fascinating that you can mix and match that like that. So in, in the same game, I can have different victory conditions than my my daughter would have then. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So, oh, okay. There are four four victory conditions that are normally there. Usually you would like if you, me and whoever were playing this, right? Experienced gamers, whatever, right? If we're going to sit down and play a game of Pax Viking, we could play with uh, just, I think there are six on each of the given levels, right? So there are six of the entry level win conditions. Then there are six of the regular ones, then six of the harder and six of the Eklendian. You would randomly draw four of let's say the regular ones right and then at any given time whenever an event uh tile is played then we check hey does it has anybody met any of those win conditions okay so very packs like in that regard whereas however if you were playing with either more casual gamers or or maybe you're playing with like say phil Eklund and yun monker and you know you're just a normal human then maybe you have the two regular win conditions and phil and yoon have the two eklundian options and they can only win when they uh reach their one of those when an event tile is played and you and i can win when we've met one of the easier ones or you know for your kids or for your grandparent whatever you get the idea and I've never seen a game that does that. I'm sure maybe there are others out there that that will allow you to scale that within the same game. But I thought that was fascinating and a freaking genius, genius idea. That's awesome. That's great. And because uh, most of the time when you play a game like that and you want to change the difficulty for certain players, you handicap them at the beginning. Say you're not going to start with this much money or you have to start in this bad position on the board or whatever. But to be able to play the game straight up and just have different win conditions is is really interesting. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, and I, I don't know what they are, but like the, the, the basic ones can be like have all of your ships on the board, like in one area or something like that, whatever. Whereas that's pretty simple, relatively speaking, right? Whereas uh, one of the regular level ones is have two duchies, which means you have to have uh, four different, um, uh, four different. Mm, how do I explain this? Well, it's funny. I, I I put myself into a hole here trying to explain what a duchy is now, but uh, but yeah, it, it's basically just a harder uh, game state. You have to get yourself in and more difficult to reach, if you will. And the fact that it does that so well is, I mean, yeah, I I'm super super stoked about this. So so Jess's eldest, she already picks up like Pax Premier Second Edition pretty well, and so I don't know that we're going to need to scale this in any way. But the idea of being able to play this in case that is the case with her and and it, me not having to you know, take it easy or, or anything like that, or any kind of like self handicap or whatever. That's just so good. And, and, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna want to try and pull your hair out to try and beat your eight year old. Uh, and, and it's going to be, yeah, I, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, as, as a, you know, stepdad, I think this is, this is pretty cool. So yeah, I'm, Anyway, I'm excited about it just for the simple fact that it's something new, it's refreshing, and I think it works really well. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. Good, good. All right, so two others real quick. Um, All right, the first one is The Cost, and this is uh, a game from a few friends of mine that I've known for, honestly, for as long as I've been in this hobby, and that's that's Mo, Linden, and Brian, the guys who run the board game group on Facebook. These guys originally uh, designed a game uh, a long while ago, and I believe it was like a print-on-demand or like a self-published game called Conflict of Plants that was pretty cool. And but it never got picked up and it never really officially, if you will, got published in a traditional sense. However, they came up with this game called The Cost, which is about asbestos farming or I'm sorry, asbestos mining. So you and I talked earlier about the French Algerian War, having no idea about that even being a thing. I didn't know asbestos was a natural occurring thing. I just learned this right now. Okay, so there you go. Uh, so asbestos, there are like six different types of asbestos uh, that g- exist in the natural world. And they're kind of like, I, if I'm not spot on, uh, allow me a little grace, a little latitude here. But they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're filaments. They're almost, they remind me of like looking at fiberglass, okay? They are fireproof or fire retardant i'm not sure they are incredible insulators as best this is and it's is an amazing amazing uh naturally occurring thing uh whatever you uh, like a thing you mine i don't know it's it's not a chemical it's not a stone it's whatever it is that you want to call it it just happens to have a downside that oh yeah it causes cancer and for you know 
hundreds of years, once people realized this had this amazing, these amazing properties, they were using it in everything. And the people should actually go and watch the the roundtable discussion at the end of it where we discussed, like, how did you even come up with this? And apparently uh, Canada, um, they had they were willing they, they outlawed asbestos, uh, but they were still allowed to mine it safely and export it to like third world countries where well, yeah go ahead you can have this terrible stuff we don't care <laughs> up until i think it was 2018 which is amazing to me that that and so that's this is way abstracted this game uh, but the theme itself when they told me about it i was like okay i'm in i t- I, I yes i'm in uh, 100% in and we played the game we played it a number of times. We played it on a tabletop simulator because it doesn't physically exist yet. And yeah, that is a legitimate ass kicker. It is a nasty, nasty game. And it also pro- uh, puts you in a position uh, with some moral dilemmas because you have the choice to either mine safely or mill safely or mine and mill unsafely well i mean do you put profits over human life that's entirely up to you so and the cost is a kind of a double entendre there for you know both you know the 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 monetary cost but also the human cost here because as you once you've basically bitten from the poison apple once you've chosen to mine unsafely every time you mine unsafely one of your mine workers dies and that stays there in that mine permanently so now the cost to be able to mine safely you have to not only take into consideration the cost of the uh living workers but also of all the dead workers that you have killed in that mine that cost now just and it just grows and it just gets harder and harder and harder to mine safely once you've bitten from that poison hmm. apple. And abstractly, it's there to represent okay, yes, you don't literally have dead bodies in your mind, but you're having to pay litigation, you're having to pay, you know, benefits and all, you know, the, you've, you, I'm sure you've seen late night commercials for, you know, the lawyers for mesothelioma. This is what it is. And I was like, I'm so in on this game. Yes. I, I will take any game where the lawyers get paid in the end. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's, I'm kidding. Uh, but. <laughs> but yeah, the theme in this grabbed me. The gameplay uh, was really good. It's uh, coming from Spielworks uh, later on. I think it's this month or next month. Um, it's available for pre-order. I think on BGG because BGG and Spielworks have a partnership, whatever. Uh, it's called the the cost. Yeah. And uh, just as a for anybody out there that is interested in the game, good news, bad news. Good news, it's going to be available here soon. Bad news, it's Spielworks. That means a thousand copies. Um, and when they're gone, they're gone. That's that. However, uh, Mo, and by Mo, I mean Armando. Uh, Canales. He he's the credited designer, but it's actually all three of them. It's uh, uh, 
Brian, Lyndon, and Mo. Uh, they are apparently already in discussions for another publisher to pick it up once this print run is done so that it'll hit uh, wider distribution. And it's a really damn good game. I Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but did they have a prototype of this at uh, HeavyCon in Denver, the last one that was held here? Yep. I think I watched them play this. And I remember talking yes. about the asbestos litigation and being pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, they they actually, this is where it kind of like had its coming out party. Was it Heavy Gun 4, I think it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and now it's uh, now it's actually become a, a real published game. And I'm super excited for the guys. They're really good dudes. And uh, it's, I mean, we're talking about theme. Yes, right? Like I want, I want that really tough decisions whether it's mechanical you know and strategy or or tactical decisions but uh, you 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 introduce a, a moral decision in mm-hmm. there as well um how awesome is this hobby that we can have mature enough games that and i'm not talking mature as in like you have slavery with uh this guilty land and stuff like that t- tackling these topics i mean adult as in just these really tough moral decisions in a game and i think that is it shows how far this hobby has come and i just man i love this stuff i love how it can be more than you know a risk and a monopoly and a Catan and you know trading in the mediterranean which let's face it i love these games you and i both love agricola right Mm -hmm. um but at the same time there can be these games that tackle these really adult themes and yeah, that's awesome. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And and I love, I'm maybe in the minority here, but I love weird themes that are a little bit different yep. and, and I just, I don't find anything for me. that's off limits. If it's, if it's a game that's going to help me think about it, I'm, I am fine with that. And so uh, a game like this, it's going to teach you something new and, even if it doesn't treat it as sensitively as, as some would like, it at least gets you thinking about what are the two sides here and what are the, the cost and benefits and why do people do it? Yep. I, I, I think that's that's pretty spot on. And I do want to say that like uh, you, uh, whether it's specifically on the cost, I asked uh, the guys at the end of the stream, I asked them, I said, there's no in-game scoring in this game. Just where you end up at the end of the, uh, I think it's the third round, that's where you end up. Um, and money uh, is points, points is money. And I asked them, I said, did you ever consider having like, okay, and for every miner that you've killed, you lose X amount of points at the end of the game? They said, yeah, we did. we did consider that. However, we pretty quickly decided against that. And the reason for it is we're not trying, we don't want you to be negatively impacted from a mechanical standpoint for choosing to mine unsafely. If you don't care about your workers, that's on you. It's not the game's decision to dictate that to you. But if you have to keep yes they're meeples right so they're not you know they're they're not you know it's obviously very clearly abstracted but you have to keep those meeples those dead meeples on your board and every time you go to mine or mill you have to decide right and it's just a constant reminder of these people that you have killed 
And you have to decide whether or not that matters to you. So morally, that's up to you, not for the game to dictate. And I was like, damn, good on you. Because, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, congratulations to those guys for getting it published and, and getting it developed. And it's neat to see something come from the prototype that I saw a couple of years ago to being published. Yeah. And, and, and it's a good game. So yeah, bonus. Um, so there's that. Yeah. Uh, the last one that uh, for multiplayer uh, is uh, 2038 18XX in space. Now, uh, yeah, this one is you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. Uh, there, there's a, there is more randomness in this 18XX game than in any other that I've ever uh, experienced. So there, normally in 18XX, there is little to no randomness in it. Whereas here, you're basically, imagine, take, take everything you know about an 18XX game and just put it in space. So the trains are spaceships, right? And uh, every space on the board can theoretically be built as quote unquote track or they're basically cities and you go and mine these things but you don't know what you're going to be what is going what you're going to find so it's going to be a random draw out of a bag and you're going to flip up a tile and maybe it is uh maybe it's water or maybe it's and i forget what the various resources are it doesn't matter but like maybe it's it's uh tin or something that's that's lucrative but within that they have different scales it could be bad water meaning it's low value so like a crappy city or medium water or expensive water so higher quality and then you're going to be buying trains aka you know spaceships it's an 18xx through and through set in space and I played this with Joe Huber, and this is Joe Huber's all-time favorite 18xx game, which to me, that's saying something. That does say something. And I also played this with Joe Rashanan. And these guys, I mean, these guys are experts, right? Like this is the the high end of experience. 18xx gamers out there i mean you have your your bruce beard you have your clear claws you have all these other people but you know eric brocious joe huber these guys there's a reason we know their names from this type of stuff and i played it with them and i i was competitive i did not get smoked i lost but i did not get smoked and i enjoyed it and it's a game though (laughs) that has some really weird calculations in it and it's really hard to remember how the calculations work for me as a first time player for 2038 let's just say i was very very grateful to have joe huber he was like no no it's this much boom 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 and i was like thanks joe all right good all right cool so uh i enjoyed that it wasn't my favorite 18xx, but I enjoyed it. And uh, if it's something that is of interest to y'all out there, um, for the first ever uh, in-person gaming since the pandemic started, uh, the fellas are going to be coming over in a couple of we- in three weeks, I think it is, or just under three weeks to come over. Um, to we're not going to stream it; we're just going to record it and then upload it. Um, so, uh, Twenty thirty-eight. It's going to be me, Joe Huber, Joe Rashanan, and maybe Eric Brocious if uh, he is comfortable um, getting together. Because, I mean, let's face it, these guys are older 
And so we all have taken this, you know, extremely seriously and, um, is not to go too far down a, uh, a, a side topic here, but uh, I'm chomping at the bit to go play poker live. And there are poker rooms open 25 minutes uh, away from me up in New Hampshire. And I've made the decision to not go play poker because even though everyone's wearing masks and the whole nine yards, I have a responsibility twofold. One, to make sure I don't get just sick to make sure she doesn't get the kids sick. But also some of the folks in our game group are older. They're not elderly. They're just older and I don't want to put them at risk. And so I have sacrificed any kind of thing like that to be able to make that to where everyone's comfortable. And by everyone, I mean these three guys in particular to come over and to do this in person so that we can stream it for everybody or record it or whatever. And the cool thing about all this was it was their idea. <laughs> like they were like, Hey, let's do this. How, how did these dates work for you? And I was like, uh-huh, you pick and I'll just shake my head and say, okay. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. So 2038, um, uh, 18 XX in space and a ton of randomness, but also I don't, I never felt like the randomness dictated who won that game. That, uh, that's good. And it's, I can't imagine that. That's intimidating and exciting at the same time to have that group to play an 18XX game. That would be like having Mark Herman and Volko Runke and uh, Cole Worley say, hey, let's play a coin game together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and here's the thing. Everybody, literally everybody that you just mentioned, I happen to know. I don't know Volko in person, but I know everybody else. And... I, I can say this universally uh, with the with the the you know the Joes and uh, Eric for 18xx as well as the other guys you mentioned. Here's the amazing thing: is they are super nice and they're just just salt of the earth folks, and they just want to have a good time. Nobody is like you know those people. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, oh, you're gonna make that move? No. If anything, they're like, do you want some help? Yeah. Oh, I would do this, this, or this. Okay. And if not, then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll kind of nudge you along and they, they want you to have a good time as well while also being competitive. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it used to be more intimidating than it is for me now because I mean, of who it is, right? It, like what you just said, like, I remember not to name drop, but I remember going over to Mark Herman's house to play Churchill. Like I was intimidated as all get out, right? I mean, I'm playing uh, Churchill with Mark Herman, Jess, and me. And unfortunately, I am permanently retired from Churchill. I can never play it again, even though I really like that game because I beat both Jess and Mark Herman in the same Churchill game. I won, huh. so I can never play it again because it's all downhill from there. <laughs> awesome. That's why I, to this day I have not played my wife in tennis for the last ten years. <laughs> You won, dropped drop the racket and said, I'm out. I retired winner and champion for our lives and I'm done. That That's me with Monopoly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I streamed it one time. We won it uh, and I will, I will forever uh, remain the heavy cardboard Monopoly champion. So I get that. But yeah, no, um, super, super good dudes. Just so kind and so welcoming and so gracious and patient. And just even though they play super quick, um, 
but it's not like you don't ever feel rushed. It's just, yeah, it's I am very, very fortunate in that regard to have these guys uh, local here. So that's, yeah. Anyway, 2038, 18xx in space with a lot of randomness, but still a uh, pretty cool game. Not my favorite, but pretty cool game. Going to be streaming it later in August. So there's that. All right. So solitaire wise now, what you've been playing? So solitaire, I... I've been playing it out of necessity because of the pandemic, obviously. And same. at the same time, I almost always on my desk at home will have a game set up that I'm just running through playing both sides uh, because I just like to have that that break during my day to, to take a time out, take a turn, think about the game for 20 minutes and get back to work. Um, my, I think my job is mentally pretty taxing some days. And so it's a great way to just shut that off and do something different. Um and give me an outlet to to think about something that I like uh, on the days where your job is kind of tedious. So I, I do play solitaire games a lot, but not to the exclusion of other games, only because they are just there and a, a nice outlet for me. So and you only got a schedule around you. Yeah. <laughs> and so- I will say I have a new appreciation for that. Let me tell you. And I now also understand why Rado and John and all these guys that do their channels by themselves on YouTube doing it by themselves really hard, but also scheduling wise, really nice. Yeah. I digress. And to be honest, you can AP as long as you want and nobody feels bad. Ah, unless you're streaming it, then all of a sudden you're like, I got to hurry up and make a damn decision. Uh But otherwise you can be like, you know what? I'll make that decision tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is truth. So I've I have been playing uh, a couple of games that I'd wanted to get to the table for a long time. One of those was Comancheria from uh, Joel Toppin over at GMT. And that that's a game that in our conflict simulation kind of world is great for the same reasons we discussed before is it makes you learn a history. It makes you feel what I think Joel is trying to get you experience, get you to experience when playing that game. And uh, the bottom line too is it's just a great game it's it's really really good it's got a great ai system because it is a solitaire only game and i have played it twice but it's a long game uh and both times i have lost in the fourth era there's there's four different eras that you play uh and i surprised myself i think i did better than i thought i would the first t- two times that i played it but it is a it's a hard game and it's a game that when you lose you think that sucks, and it sucks for the people that really had to go through it. And it's actually, it's funny. I redid the shelf here in the studio to put games that I'm chomping at the bit to get played and to have on the show. And that's actually sitting on the shelf right there because that, uh, this is the set. I don't want to call it a series necessarily, but it, it, it's the follow up to Navajo Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the talking about the, uh, the plight of the Native American, I think, might have been uh, might be a good way to to frame that. And I've heard. And I have you played Navajo Wars? I have not, but okay. I I have uh, enjoyed GM or excuse me enjoyed Comancheria enough that uh, when I was done, I went and found one of the few remaining copies out there and ordered it. So it's sitting on my shelf. And I've heard that Comancheria is a 
easier to get into, like the, the learning curve is a little bit uh, smoother, a little bit easier to get into with Comancheria than Navajo Wars. So that's the order in which I'm actually going to be playing them as well. And uh, yeah. I think that's right. And I'll uh, let me just say something about GMT's playbooks. There might not be a better way to learn a game like Comancheria because if you start reading the, the rule book, it's very procedural and it is very dry and it's really hard to learn. But he has got this playbook set up so that he walks you through the setup of the game. He walks you through the first set of turns and says, here, now go read this section of the rule book after you take this turn to understand what you just did. And honestly, you can learn the whole game in a couple hours playing through the playbook. And it's it's really fantastic. Nice. I, uh, I'll be honest. That might be a way I might stream it. I might actually do that and actually play through the playbook. Uh, on on stream to be able to show folks, um, even though obviously they can do it on their own, whatever. But I think that would be an interesting way to uh, to approach the game as well, and that's really encouraging to hear. And I know that Joel is active on BGG and social media and everything. I see him posting a lot on Twitter and everything. So yeah, that's one that I'm um is pretty high on my short list of games to get into. So that's that's encouraging. Good. Uh, another one I played that I got at the beginning of the pandemic, I think it was on sale from uh, somewhere from Compass Games. It's usually pretty expensive, but is Enemy Action Ardennes. This is a Battle of the Bulge solitaire game, uh, but it's also a two-player game. You can play either side as a solitaire scenario, either the German side or the, the Allied side, and then you can play uh, a two-player game. So it's really three games in one. You get three maps. And I have just uh, run through the two-player game briefly to make sure I understood it and then played the solitaire game. And it's, it is really good. If you've ever played D-Day at Omaha Beach, uh, it is... I would not say similar to that, but if you liked that game, you would like this game. And it's a John Butterfield design. Uh, I know you just played Space Corp, and and I would agree with you that it is a much better game solitaire than it is multiplayer. Yes. And when you look at what, what John Butterfield has done with these two designs, it shouldn't be surprising. He does such a, a phenomenal job of making an engaging conflict uh, solitaire system. So it's it's been really good. I've enjoyed it. It's it's got a long rule book. It's about seventy pages. So <laughs> it's it's an investment. But hey, when you're in quarantine, what else are you gonna do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, how how did you find it? Was it was it smooth? Was it clunky? Was it as far as playing it solo, not the two player, but the the solitaire sides? So the solitaire game, it's it's a lot like. Um, a lot like D-Day at Omaha Beach, where it's card-driven. So you're, you're drawing a card to see what the enemy does. The only thing that's really difficult is you have to be very familiar with the way that, that the military units are organized, with the numbering, with uh, the different command levels, because the cards will activate different units based on uh, where they sit in that command hierarchy. And so you, you really have to know where those units are on the board, because you know, if you get one and it's all of your, I can't remember the, the terminology they use, but if it's all the orange units, you've got to go through and figure out, all right, which units can I use based on this card draw? And so that can actually be a little bit tedious until you become very familiar with the game. And then it flows pretty smoothly, just like D-Day at Omaha Beach. Uh, it is more complex than D-Day at Omaha Beach, though. And which, which I, I'll be honest, that scares me a little because D-Day at Omaha Beach is... Little intimidating, not gonna lie, but that is that is the pinnacle from everything I've heard. D Day at Omaha Beach is the pinnacle for solo war game board gaming. I can't argue with that. I've played that maybe ten times, um, and once you really 
get the system down, it flows really well. And I love that game because there is so many uh, meaningful and impactful decisions you're making. You're moving your players around the board, your units, and, and there's very little overhead to run the system. You're turning over cards to see which bunkers are shooting. Um, it's a very intelligent AI system, so you do feel like it's it's what you would get if you were actually there on the beach. Uh, but there's so little overhead. And I can compare that to another solo game that John Butterfield designed called RAF, which I really disliked. Um, a lot of people love it. It's a narrative kind of game, but out of the the play uh, the play structure, there are maybe 30 things you're doing on each turn, and there are maybe four of those where the player is making real decisions. And ultimately, those decisions were not all that meaningful because they were heavily dependent on the die roll and the luck uh, of what kind of cards you drew. And so that that almost kind of sounds like, uh, in a lot of ways, the hunters, um, because the hunters from GMT, it's very much all about the story that you're telling, and you're not really making a ton of interesting decisions, but it is a pretty compelling story. It tells. It is, and I I actually like. I've played the hunters, but I sold it in favor of silent victory. I like playing the other side a little better, Uh, but it's this exact same system. And I enjoy that game because it's fairly easy once you get through the procedure and you know what you're doing. Uh, So there's not as much overhead, but if with each of those die rolls and each time you're looking up something on the chart, you can develop kind of a narrative. It does tell a fun story. I didn't get that same feeling with the RAF. Okay. So getting back though, D-Date Omaha Beach, arguably the best solo war game out there. And you're and you look at the map, it's intimidating as all get out. Uh, but now you're saying enemy action Arden is a step up in difficulty from that. I think it is. I don't know that it's a step up in dif- a step up in difficulty as far as how hard it is to win. I actually think it's a little bit easier, but uh, it's more I think there's more procedure to it. And I think there's more that you need to know about Hex Encounter Wargaming for it to really flow well. D-Day at Omaha Beach, I think, is easier to get into uh, as long as you understand movement points and um, just the, the basics of being able to read the symbology on the map. You should be able to get into it. But man, is it hard to win? Out of those 10 times... The game is in two halves, and I, to be honest, I've only played the first half because you have to establish a beachhead before you can even move on and try and move up into the forest area behind the beach. I mean, that's really what happened, right? I mean... Yeah, and one out of ten times I have gotten that far, and when I did, I thought... I felt like when I had beat my wife in tennis, I, I think, I'm done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to call it good right here and say I've won this game finally. But that's exactly what you want in a solo game, right? You don't want it to roll over because otherwise, why are you bothering? That's not, you know, fulfilling. Yeah, exactly. So it's I wouldn't try and move on to enemy action Ardennes until you've played D-Day at Omaha Beach. And if you're interested at all in solitaire wargaming, uh, you should definitely play D-Day at Omaha Beach. That's um, my goal. And I, I committed to this that this year I will get that streamed, yeah. which means I have to have played it a number of times beforehand so that I'm comfortable with the system so that it flows. Yeah. Uh, so there's another, a couple other games. I played Gloom of Killforth, which is a game that I had off Kickstarter for a while. It's kind of a, f- a fantasy solo adventure 
you're moving around a map that's that's built up with a bunch of different cards as the gloom slowly spreads across the land. So each turn, one of those cards will turn over to be a more gloom uh, style artwork, and you have to win the game, defeat the 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 boss character before all of the the cards turn over. And it's it's good. I mean, it's a fun game. There's a lot of luck involved. Uh, it, you can take a lot of that luck out if you know the distribution of the cards in the different decks. And of course, I, I had to go figure that out and make a spreadsheet so that I could see, you know, if I need a particular attribute to defeat this character, that. I want to know which card, which deck I need to be going through. So it's it's a fun game. It's not terribly heavy. Um, it, it does tell a good story, but you have to work at it a little. I don't know if that makes sense, okay. but yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. You know, you can you can play it just as a, a Euro style game. But if you get into it a little more, you can make it tell a story. So it's one I'm glad I have. I'm not sure that I'll keep it long term. Okay. Um, the other game I played was On Mars. I have not played this one's multiplayer yet, but Solitaire, I thought it was awesome. It might be, and I can't say this until I play it multiplayer, but it might be one of my favorite Lacerda games. I, I thought the complexity in it, once you got over it, it all came together in a really neat way. And I... Uh, it might not surprise you knowing that I like terraforming Mars. So maybe the subject matter has something to do with it, but really, really liked that one. I'm curious before I, before I, I say anything on this, have you played the gallerist? I have that have you played it solo. I have not played it solo. Okay. Okay. And did you like the gallerist? I did like the gallerist. Yeah. So I don't want to dissuade you one way or the other. But in my opinion, I think the gallerist is insanely superior by a order of magnitude solitaire wise than on Mars. Um, I think the on Mars uh, bot or the on Mars solitaire aspect. When you, <sighs> you see how clean and how elegant and just how well done the gallerist one is and then you come to on mars i was i think that's probably been my most frustrating solitaire experience due to the way that the bot ran it was the hardest thing i've had to do solitaire wise there is nothing elegant or clean about on mars multiplayer or solitaire i think i think it's a big I messy agree. a big messy complicated game and that might be what I like about it. Um, but I'll have to try the Gallerist solo. I've I've liked that multiplayer, but I've never tried it solo. Yeah, I I I find myself enjoying the Gallerist more and more every single time I play it. And I was just completely smitten with that game. Uh Solitaire. Just that was that was that was absolutely a pleasure. Yeah. Whereas on Mars was uh, the antithesis of that for me. I did not at all enjoy on Mars solitaire. Um, now that could be, you know, two thumbs pointing back at this guy. It could be a me issue, but I, yeah, I mean, you want my unfiltered, honest opinion. The gallerist is far superior solitaire. Good to know. On Mars. I'll have to get that a shot. All right. And you and I uh, both have been playing a uh, certain splatter game, Solitaire, as well. <laughs> uh, so Roads and Boats, since I got in the hobby, I think, has been my my grail game. I have started trying to p- uh, print and play my own and build my own uh, a set for it. And I gave up because I turns out I have no talent for that or time for that. Um, 
And when it was reprinted, it was one of the great days of my life, I think. <laughs> I was so excited. I ordered it. And it's probably the least cost effective way to do this is to order it straight from Splatter. And I just thought, I have to make sure I get this. And so I'm going to order it straight from the Netherlands. and Because that's a massive box. Yep. And you're ordering it from the Netherlands. And uh, that game is so up my alley. It Logistically, um, I just love that. And it turns out my oldest daughter, uh, she she really enjoys that kind of a game too, where you're planning something out and building this. You're going from a couple of geese and pieces of wood to a stock market. And I just think that's fascinating. It is. Oh, and it's it's totally a tongue-in-cheek, you know... <laughs> You know, whimsical way to look at things. I think. I mean, it, it, it's so totally splatter. Yeah. And yeah, I I have now streamed it twice, uh, solitaire, two different ones. There uh, for those that are interested, if you have roads and boats, there is a monthly challenge on BGG that uh, every month uh, Ethan Malay and sometimes a guest uh, will come up with just this this scenario. And for solitaire and people just say, hey, you know, I struggled with this, whatever, and they'll post their results or whatever. Or you could just go and try and, you know, do whatever uh, the monthly challenge is and or there are solitaire other solitaire maps out there, multiplayer as well. And that is a surprisingly enriched and just engrossing gameplay for a solitaire game, man. I really like me some roads and boats solitaire yeah. a lot. I just want to know why you need geese to research something. Yeah. And I also, I, I have, I have so many questions. <laughs> why, why do geese and donkeys not reproduce? Uh, if, if there is anything on that tile other than those two, uh, apparently like if there's like a, a you know, like a, a stack of lumber, the, the 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 donkeys will not reproduce. Apparently, um, they're they're all for it, but one of them takes up woodworking, is what I've been told. <laughs> um, or or why? Uh, what is it? Uh, research just all of a sudden will disappear if you don't have a transport there. When when research automatically happens, and I mean it's it's just a total splatter sense of humor. It is. It's, it's similar, like in bus, right? The stopping time and just the space time continuum gets. Yeah. Yep. I I mean I love all of the splatter games I have, and I think I have all of the the core games that people would consider. like the big five or big six, whatever it is now. Yep. Which uh, okay, so let's see, uh, roads and boats. Uh, food chain magnet, mm-hmm. Indonesia, antiquity. Help me out here. Bus, uh, uh, bus, and uh, Great Zimbabwe. Yep, those are the main six, if you will. There's also some people would argue there, and I don't think this is an argument. I think that it's the big six there, and then there's also cons. There's um, Greed Inc. and Duck Dealer. Everything else is like really esoteric, other than those. Yep. And I'll tell you what, we can make it a big seven as soon as they reprint another one of those. Which is? Any of those three. <laughs> I, I can't say I'm going to add it to my collection because it's essential uh, and try and find it on the black market somewhere. <laughs> Sounds like heroin. Yeah. Um, all right. Good stuff. Yeah. So I obviously roads and boats monthly challenge for me. Uh, I failed majestically, but it was 
And I thought I was doing so much better than I was, too. And that was such a frustrating moment when it dawned on me, like, oh, you were so screwed, dude. <laughs> uh, Tekenu, I played that solo. Um, good news, bad news. If you really like uh, Teotihuacan or uh, Zolkin, you know, the Daniel Tassini series, this feels like a evolution of uh, uh, Teo. And it's just... It's just better. It just feels better. And it feels, it still feels like there's a whole lot going on like there is in Teo, but it just feels like the mental um, tracking in everything that, oh, I, if I do this here, then I got to remember to move this over here. I got to do this over there. That has been gr uh, greatly reduced and it's just a much more fluid game and it just flows better, even though it is a completely different animal than Teo, but yeah, a really big fan of Tekenu. However, I totally butchered my playthrough of it because I somehow, I think I played two extra rounds and I should not. Make sure you follow the procedures when you do that, especially whenever you do stuff solo. Mm. Uh, played Space Corp solo. I, I feel like I've played that game solo a bunch of times, even though I've only played it once. Because even when you play it multiplayer... You're kind of playing it solitaire. A little bit. And I think that game is best solitaire uh, in my experience. And I still, I don't love the third era in Space Corp. I, I really enjoy the first and second eras a lot more than the third era. It just feels so different than the first two. It just feels like a different game almost. And it just hasn't grabbed me. Yeah. Although... I like playing it solo more than I do multiplayer. And so I'm willing to that it's softened a bit, I guess is what I'm saying. My, uh, my dislike of the third era in the solitaire mode. How about, how about you? So I played it multiplayer a number of times. And the first time I played it, I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. And it's a game that soured on me over time. Uh, each time I played it, I liked it less because the first time we played it, it was really about the exploration and seeing what how, how the game works. And I think it's got some really good mechanisms and the rule book's fantastic. It is. Um, and I, I do like John Butterfield designs. But as we played it more and you realize it really is a race game and it is trying to do things not just to explore, but to explore as fast as you can to take what is, is readily available so that no one else can take it and force them to go farther and use more of their cards and move their, more of their turns and to be less efficient. Um, it, it lost some of the charm, I think, because it became so dependent on the cards that you would draw that sometimes you just have a bad hand and you couldn't do what you needed to do and someone would race ahead of you and you felt like there was very little you had uh, as far as control over how that played out. And so eventually I ended up trading it away. But I, I played it solitaire a couple times because, again, John Butterfield, let's see how it works. And I thought it was really, really slick the way that played. And I almost kept it just for the solitaire aspect, but I'm running out of shelf space. So it, it, it ended up on the trade block. That's fair, I think. Yeah, it's not uh, It's not in the upper echelon of solo games that I've experienced now that, you know, since I've been doing a, a lot more of it. Um, however, this next one, uh, I'll be honest, uh, shocked how much I enjoyed this one. And that's uh, Tales of Northlands, Sagas of Nag and the Nog. I had 
no expectations of this being any good whatsoever. Solitaire. I really thoroughly enjoyed the multiplayer game. Not at all a game that I ever considered being worth a damn solo. Well, I played it. Ricky Royal is the one who uh, designed the solitaire rules for this. And top five solitaire game that I've played. That makes- no, no, I'm not saying go and buy it. I'm just watch the playthrough of it. And here's why. I am amazed. Well, first, I'm in awe of, okay, the solitaire was not, didn't exist. And Ricky Royal took an existing, all, all existing things that were already in the game and made an AI run off of that that is just so simple to run and so clever and so slick and so easy that it still feels it i mean it feels like a solitaire game but it doesn't feel like i'm not getting the same experience that i would get if i were playing it multiplayer and seamless i think is a good way to put it and i mean the theme i'll be honest the theme doesn't really do anything for me so sagas and nog in the nog if you were uh british this is a big deal if you are of a certain age because this is based on the uh, uh, the children's series from, I think it's the 60s, from Peter Furman. And the artwork is kitschy. It's, again, it's all authentic from the, the actual show. I don't have any nostalgia for this because, I'll be honest, I thought it was a kid's game when I first heard about it a couple years ago when I was going to uh, when I was going to Lyriacon and I had first met the designer Nick Case. Come to find out, this is actually a really damn meaty Euro and it is a fantastic solo game. And I, I didn't really, I, I, I thought it was going to be mediocre at best. The solitaire game, and I was blown away at how good it was. For me, it's a top five solitaire experience. Keep in mind, I have a much more limited solitaire experience than like you do, JT. Um, uh, like I would have Nemo's War up in that top five probably as well. And I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head and failing majestically. But yeah, um, I was blown away at how good and how simple uh tales of northlands was to run an ai bot for this it was just really really well done that's good and that's a rare thing to be honest to have a multiplayer game that has a solitaire bot version of it that runs that well to where you enjoy it i i have a hard time with games like uh lizard games for instance or i was gonna say looking at you on mars yeah uh, I, I wouldn't get that out and play that solo again. Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I like the game, but I th- it's making me excited to play it multiplayer, but it, it is a chore to play um, solitaire. But when you have a game that's multiplayer that has a smooth bot to where it doesn't take so much overhead to run that you can just play the game like you're playing a multiplayer game is a rare thing. Yep. And 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 that's one of the glorious things about uh, like the gallerist, right? Uh, it, during one of the streams, uh, someone had said that for their definition of a good AI bot uh, or a good bot, you know, whenever you're playing solitaire is it should take no more than 15, 20 seconds for the bot to run its turn. Right. Obviously when you're first learning the game, that's an exception. And I think uh, uh, tales of Northlands 
It can be as simple as like five seconds a lot of times. Sometimes it's a little bit longer, um, but it is, yeah, it, it is super smooth. And I'm just, yeah, I was really uh, blown away. Um, totally, I came into it with, you know, no expectation. And even if I had expectation, it would have surpassed it. I just really, really enjoyed it. And it was hard. And it was tight and it was tense and that's everything that you want in a solo game. So I'll tell you what, I I I uh I have an extra copy of it. I will send it to you, JT, so you can give it a go because I definitely want uh I want your take on that. Yeah, I'd love to give it a shot. Um it's it's a game I remember looking at. I've never played it. Um like you, I thought it was geared towards kind of a, a more child audience. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it didn't initially grab me, but uh given that recommendation how can you argue right uh appreciate it and uh the last one is uh 1862 so i've never played 1862 multiplayer uh i've heard it's a really good game it is staggeringly good for a uh, solo 18xx i it man i i've been embarrassed on stream twice now uh i have not done very well uh, with this game however the the solo aspect of it 18xx games are meant to be played with multiple players right three or three or more oh, almost across the board yeah 1862 however adds in euro elements to 1862 and turns it into a surprisingly good uh 18xx experience it the only real thing that i feel is missing uh there's still train rushes there's still all of these things but the you're not all of the companies in the game that you're running they're yours and so you're not there's no competition on the board for tokening out and blocking other companies in fact that would be a a definite negative for you to block yourself out on certain routes you don't want to do that however you do want to be able to put down tokens for if and when you choose to merge companies together to be able to uh run better routes but it is an extraordinarily complex 18xx there are three different types of trains uh there are locals that uh i believe only hit uh pips and cities, but they can't hit off-board locations. Then there are express trains, and I, I want to make sure I'm explaining this right. Express trains can hit everything, and then there are freight trains, which are hex trains, and those ignore uh, whistle stops. And a company can only operate trains, those of which they have uh, licenses for I there's another term for license but they 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 permissions little tokens whatever doesn't matter and in the solitaire game there are the three different types of licenses in the game the the local the express and the uh, freight and the order in which those companies whenever you start a company you have to take the next the the next uh, uh, license. So if the next one is an express one, it has to be an express company. Or it, ha- it can only run express trains, I should say. And so the order in which you want to start those companies becomes a game in and of itself because the president shares, which are 30% shares 
1862 are completely removed from the game. So each company only has 70% available for it. And you're allowed to own up to 100% of the company. But here's where the euro aspect of the game comes in, which is unlike any 18xx I've ever seen or heard of. You take all of the shares from every company in the game and you shuffle them together face down and you make one huge stack of 10% shares of like 20... I think there's 20 or 24 different companies in that. So times that by seven, do the math, however many cards there are. You shuffle them up and then you deal out, I think it's seven uh, columns of like, no, it's, oh shoot, it's nine columns of six or seven cards each. And you fan them out so you can see what's in each column. And the only cards that are available are the ones that are on the top of each column. So if you've ever played like Spider, Right. The old, uh, you know, Windows game that, you know, you're moving cards around or solitaire like that. type. You're basically trying to do that. But you can also discard cards at tops of rows out of the game. But if you do that, that company now is not available to be started. And it's going to block off that hex on the map permanently if it hasn't already been started. So if this hex on the map is in a really good location and you remove it from the game, you then take a tile and turn it upside down. So it's now just a white or black hole. That mm. it's You can't build on that spot. And it just, it becomes this, this puzzle that is, I have not even come close to beating it at like the lowest level. Uh, to be able to succeed in 1862, your goal is $9,000. In your portfolio and share value as well as cash. I think the closest I've gotten is like 41, 4,200, something like that. Yeah. And it is, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It is, you're on a clock. Uh, the There are only, I think, four or five sets of operating rounds in this game because the game will automatically eat trains. And you know what ones it's going to eat and how many it's going to eat. So all of this is open information. The only randomness in this game is the order in which those cards in the in the displays are. And then you have to manipulate those cards to be able to start certain companies when you want to start them. And then you can possibly merge companies. Do I merge this, lo- this company that has a local uh, permit? Permit, that's what they're called. Uh, w- with a, an express... Or do I merge it with a freight? Or do I merge it with another local? Maybe I don't merge it at all. It is every single thing in this game is just a monster decision, it feels like. And it is at no point outside of the tokening out, which happens in an 18xx, you know, you can get blocked out of runs. Outside of that, this feels like playing a full 18xx game and i've gotten my ass kicked twice and i can't wait to get it kicked some more and i desperately desperately want to play this some more i think mike hutton did a just a wow job coming up with a solitaire aspect for 1862 and it's available from gmt like it's not like super super expensive and super hard to get and super rare so if you're one of those out there that you're you're curious about it i would 
recommend checking it out. And here's the thing. It is not an easy 18XX. It is not a starter 18XX. However, one big caveat here. If you've never played an 18XX and you're intrigued by it, know that these are meant to be played with three or more players. However, I can I feel confident saying this. If you've never played an 18XX game, but you play solitaire games and you are interested in trying an 18XX solitaire, I can wholeheartedly recommend 1862 even as your first 18XX, even though it is really complex and really a step up from what a like an 18 Chesapeake or an 1846 or an 1889 would be, which is what I would normally recommend people start out with uh, for an 18XX. But if you are already playing either war games or heavy euros as solitaire, you're going to be fine playing 1862. And yeah, man, I was intimidated and terrified of playing this and streaming it and embarrassing myself. And I don't care. I just want to play it some more. I have enjoyed it that much as a solitaire game. So I'm uh, I'm just ordering this right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, there's three left at Miniature Market. Um, I feel like they should pay us for this. Right. <laughs> uh, that's so. I mean, that was the question I had going into it. I. I have played 18XX games and I don't play them regularly because I just don't have a group that really wants to play them. So I play them at cons. I played 18 Chesapeake, 1830, 1846. Um, that's as far as I've gotten. And I looked at this and thought, and I saw the solitaire version of it and I thought that is intriguing, but that can't be any good at all. I couldn't imagine a, a solitaire 18XX version. So to hear you say that is pretty surprising. I, you ain't lying. I was totally, totally shocked by it. And here's the cool thing. The solitaire rules are on a sheet of paper. However, I mean, you've got to also understand the the base rules for the, for the uh, multiplayer game. Um, that said, Mike Hutton is extremely kind and extremely patient and nice. And he was there during the live streams and, uh, yeah, I, I recommend if anybody's out there interested, check them out. They're, I, I didn't do a great job of showing how to play the game well. Um, and I definitely <sighs> made some mistakes in here or there, but I would, at least for the flow of the game, um, I think you can, I think there, there's, there's use in those. And yeah, I think it's really, really. I'm blown away that he could turn an 18xx into a solitaire game and not just that, but do it well. And whew, I mean, it, it, it turns the game on its ear. Like there, there, there are whole sections of the game. There's a whole phase of the game, uh, that doesn't exist in the solitaire game, but at no point did I, and I have no experience with it multiplayer. So I don't know what I'm missing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And apparently the, the trains come out in a, in a set order normally, or I'm sorry, the uh, companies can be started uh, based on a chart at the top of the board. Never played a multiplayer though, so I can't speak to that. What I do know is the way that he has incorporated that tableau uh, and manipulating the cards and, and just the timing of it and do I merge, do I not merge, and if I do, when, and it's just... 
all of the decisions that I felt like I would want to make in an 18xx game, I feel like are still here, even though uh, I'm not really. There's no competition. Like the the game is going is eating up trains, but the game isn't running any routes. The game isn't starting any companies. It's not doing anything like that. At, outside of the, I think it's four companies that are randomly removed from the game at the beginning of the game before the game starts. Outside of that, everything's within your control. Obviously, the draw deck for more, you know, certificates coming out that's random and everything. But manipulating that and managing that is, I mean, this is the type of stuff you play solitaire games for, I feel like. And it still felt like an 18xx to me, even with the one exception being the, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not getting blocked out of routes outside of if I get rid of a company and it flips that tile over before it's come into play, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's, that was damn good. It and, was really good. In 1862, if I remember right, the map is not very big. So Oh, it's tiny. Ew. It's, it's just the, I, I, I want to say it's like the, the eastern or southeastern part of the UK. Like it's, it's the area just kind of northeast of London, I believe. So it's not big at all. It's, I, yeah, it's, it's. Uh, an eight-inch pie dish would cover the map, I think, thereabouts, or like a ten-inch pie dish. So, I don't know why that was the first thing that came to mind. For huh, how can I put a picture in somebody's head as to what size? And I come up with a pie dish. Really? Apparently, I'm hungry. Who knew? <laughs> All right. So now there's there's one more that I I have here on the list that I am hella jealous about because I do not have a copy of it. Emphasis on the yet. And I desperately want this. Um, Tell me about some Imperial Struggle. You need a copy of this. So GMT, (laughs) Roger, if you're listening, you need to send Edward a copy of this because uh, this game is fantastic. Uh, I have played it now three times. I have played it um, on Vassal, I've played it in person. I have played it. Uh, I've, I'm running through it solo right now because it's on my desk. I can't imagine taking it off of my desk right now because every time I play a turn, I think I want to just play the next turn. Um, this is the follow up to the Twilight Struggle uh, game that was released back in, I think, 2009, 2010 from GMT that focused on the Cold War. And in that game, you were spreading influence around the world, uh, playing either the United States or the Soviet Union. And the game was driven by a deck of cards. And the thing that was so great about that game to me was that every uh, hand of cards you drew, you had to figure out how am I going to play these so that uh, the events that occur on those cards, even if they favor my opponent, I can still mitigate using the the ops points that I'm going to get from those cards. that game had just a ton of tension and and it's a little bit I think it's aged a little bit. I feel like the design when you play it, you feel like it's a game from the early 2000s rather than a more modern game because there are some strange cards that have weird dice rolls. Uh, there's a, a card called Bear Trap and a card card called Quagmire that can get you stuck in the Vietnam War or the Afghan uh, War, respectively. That can just destroy the game for you if you can't roll a good uh, a good a good role to get out of those two, uh, those two cards. Um, but regardless, twilight struggle was one of my favorite games for years because being in 
with that nuclear weapon complex background, I studied a lot of this Cold War history. It all made a lot of sense to me. When you're playing a duck and cover card, I thought, yes, you should all duck and cover. And I just, I loved that game. I loved the story it told, even with the flaws I think it had with its inherent uh, output randomness uh, as far as rolling dice for results. I loved the story it told and it, it was a great game. And the guys who designed that have been designing Imperial Struggle for a couple of years. I mean, it's been on the GMT P500 list for feels like a forever. W- long time, yeah. And it's it's their highest, as far as I understand, the highest uh, pre-order that they have had. They shipped somewhere north of 4,000 copies of it, which is a lot for a, a war game company. Um, Imperial Struggle is great. And it is simulating the struggle between France and England uh, from the early 18th century till the 19th century. So you're going uh, from 1700 up through just past the American Revolutionary War. And you have four theaters of operations. You have North America, you have the Caribbean, you have India, and you have Europe. And uh, I will just give you a quick overview because I could talk for the next 45 minutes about this game. <laughs> this bodes well. I, 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 I'm trying to hide my enthusiasm just a little bit. Um, but you have, uh, instead of cards that are driving this, there are action tiles that are, uh, revealed at the beginning of each turn. And there are nine of them. You take four turns back and forth drafting one of these tiles and on the tile, it will tell you what type and how many actions you get to do. There are diplomatic actions that help you establish diplomatic relationships with different areas on the board. There are military actions that allow you to, uh, build squadrons. These are your or naval vessels to build forts on land to upgrade your military units that go onto the war, the war chart. And I, I don't even know that I'll get into that, but there's a war chart. And uh, uh, you can use those military points to upgrade those tiles that you're putting on the war chart. Um, and then there are economic actions, which you use to, to take control of various economic markets. There's fur in North America and fish. There is spice and cotton from India. And there is sugar and... Um, Sugar and something else in the Caribbean. Sugar and tobacco. Tobacco? In right, the Caribbean. Yeah, that, I mean, that just makes sense, right? Sure. Yep. Sure. And you're, you're much like Twilight Struggle, you're playing these points to, to place flags on, the, on the, uh, the game board to show that you have influence or control of those areas. At the same time, you have event cards that are dealt to you. So you do have a hand of cards like Twilight Struggle, but you are playing these only when the tile that you draft with the action on it will allow you to do so. And so there's a puzzle to each hand saying, how do I maximize what I can get out of this event by pairing it with the right action that I can draft? And at the same time, playing that with your ministry cards. And this is another aspect of the game. You have these ministry cards that you can play that two of them at a time that will kind of set the stage for how you're going to play two turns. So they're more of a strategic kind of focus that you give your turn. And all of these three things played together to determine how efficient your actions can be and how much you can get done on the board. And there is so much going on in this game. Some people say that it's that's kind of a detriment to it, but Ultimately, there are 16 different areas that you need to be tracking in the game to see whether you're winning, which is a lot the first time you play it. And I can promise you it gets simpler as you play it more because you see which areas are going to be scored when. It's like the the scoring cards in Twilight Struggle. Once you see, you know, once you know where those are, um, you know where to focus your effort, where to bluff a little bit. And this game is is similar in that regard, that there is tension all the time 
because there is so much to try and keep track of. I loved in Twilight Struggle that even when you had a lead, you felt like the dam was just about to break and you were going to lose. And I feel that way in this game too, that it is always just a constant struggle to to keep everything in your favor. Um, and let me just touch briefly on the war chart. There are four wars that are simulated in the game. So there are six peace turns and then four war turns. And during the peace turns, you're not only trying to, to keep your influence around the board and take control of certain markets and establish diplomatic relationships and, and have majorities in each area. Uh, you're also trying to deploy troops and support to these different theaters of the war. So like the Spanish war of Spanish succession will have four different theaters. Um, and one of those will be the Jacobite rebellion in, in Ireland in Scotland. Uh, one of them will be in, uh, two of them will play out in Europe. One will play out in, I believe in the Caribbean, if I remember right. So you're trying to put different troops and, and support in those areas on the war board and you've got to look at what the results of those wars will be. There are some wars you just have to say, I'm going to punt on this. I'm going to lose this because it's only going to cost me two victory points. But I'll tell you, the game I played last time, the British um, went all in on the, the Jacobite Rebellion. I, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. but ja- Jacobite. I, I, Jess has been making me watch Outlander, so that's why. I awesome. This. Yes. The Jacobite Rebellion, and that was five victory points. And I, I didn't realize that, that outcome was so uh, monumental. And that ended up costing me the game pretty early because I, I ignored it. I thought, I'm just going to punt on this one. And this, the type of outcome you're going to get from each of those wars depends on how decisive your victory is. So if you win by one point, it's not a big deal. But when you lose by six points... Uh, Five points. That's is, when you uh, suddenly are in a massive deficit. So, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, like, I like everything about the game. It is big. It takes... If you go all the way through to the end, if there are no victory conditions that are satisfied before the end, uh, it can take four hours. I think once okay. you right. know what it's going to be and you've got some experience, you could probably pull it down to three hours. Um, but man, it's... I haven't been this excited about a game that I've played after three plays uh, in probably two years, I would, I, I don't know what else that I would consider so far in 2020, but this is, this is the game of the year for me so far. Okay. All right. So having, I, I, I'm still a neophyte when it comes to twilight struggle, because I know with twilight struggle, um, which, you know, there for the longest time was the number one game on BGG. And one of the, uh, nice aspects, but also one of the barriers to entry is you really need to know that common deck of cards. You need to know that, okay, this card has that counter to it, or this is best to be used for this, et cetera, et cetera. And there is some really, really high-end play that can go in uh, and be a part of that, or uh, that, 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 that comes from that. As far as comparing the two as far as a complexity standpoint as well as a learning curve standpoint where would you where would you put the two games in relation to one another again just to be able to give for those of us that haven't played it yet just context that's a really good question uh and those are the two aspects that i think are most useful in comparison to twilight struggle uh because i absolutely agree you have to know the cards in twilight struggle to play the game well and if you're playing against someone who knows the cards and you don't, you're going to get destroyed. Yes. 
The cards in this game do not have as much of an impact as they do in Twilight Struggle, and there are fewer of them. You're only playing three of them per turn, and they generally give you a benefit that is not as monumental as what you're getting in Twilight Struggle. There's no Fidel okay. Castro card that destroys everything you've done in Cuba. Um but they do give you some benefits. And there are a couple cards that you just need to know not to abandon so that you don't abandon a certain area of the board. And just know that these exist and hey, these are possible. So just heads up on that type of thing, right? Yep. And I think that that also goes with the war areas. I think it makes sense if you're teaching someone the game, as you get to each war, say, look, here, look at the wars, look at what types of things on the board contribute to each war. Some of the wars you get points for having. Uh, fomented conflict in those areas. Some of them give you points for squadrons and fortresses that are pure military. Some are going to give you points in the war based on your diplomatic relationships. And so you want to make sure that they understand that because um, I thought I knew all that. And I, like I said, I punted on the, the Jacobite um, yeah. Yeah, area yeah, rebellion. Yeah. Well, there's a ministry card for the French that if you play that, they get three victory points based on their victories in that area. Plus the five victory points they got from me giving up on it. And so oh my. you have to know as the British, <laughs> you can't just give up Scotland and Ireland to France, which makes total sense historically. But um, there, there are certain things like that that come out after a couple of plays where you just know, okay, this area is important early in the game, this area later. Um, so there is, there is, I think, a bit of a learning curve with the cards, but it is nowhere near uh, the extent that you need to know the cards in Twilight Struggle. So that's a, that that's encouraging to hear, um, because honestly, I want to like Twilight Struggle and I want to get into it, but I also know that, I mean, it's kind of like chess in a lot of ways, it, lifestyle game type mm-hmm. thing to where, like you said, if you play out, if you don't know the deck and somebody else does. It's over before it even starts. Yeah. And the nice thing is with this game, it is broken up into the equivalent of in Twilight Struggle, which would be the the early war, mid war and late war deck. So you get these ministry cards and you have 12 or 13 of them and you have to pick two of them to play at the beginning of the game, which is really kind of daunting for a new player. You have to read all 13 cards and figure out the ramifications of them. But the game is good in that it limits which cards can be played in different eras. So really at the beginning of the game, you look at the four cards and you say, you can make a simple evaluation. You can say, which of these cards melds with my events that I've drawn to give me the most synergy between these two things. Right, and just play it like super tactically like that, right? Yeah. And you can totally do that and you'll be fine. Uh, there's probably higher level gameplay that I am not to yet where that will make a big difference. But at, at this stage, I think it's much more approachable in that sense. You don't have to know everything and you can play it kind of seat of your pants and do what makes sense at the time. And you'll be OK as long as you don't give up Ireland and Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Good night. That works. Yeah, I, I've I've been seeing this all over social media and. I, I every time I see it, the map just looks pretty too. And as a mapophile, I just it just looks good. And I'm like, yeah. But it's also one of those games to where because it has this hidden hand of cards, right? Yes, I understand. I can play it on Vassal and everything, but that is that's a step past like a tabletopia or a tabletop simulator or whatever, as far as the level of involvement in learning a a software to be able to get into. And for me, the reason I've kind of dragged my feet on it right now is, well, 
most of the people that I would be able to play this with, I can't hang out with yet because not everyone's comfortable getting together. And I understand that. So, eh, and it's not one I can play over, you know, Skype type thing because you have to have your own hand of cards, right? Yep. So that makes it difficult. Um, but yeah, I am. Dude, all you've done is basically what I am doing is the exact same thing that you had me or that I (laughs) caused you. Basically, if you wouldn't hear the tippity tap of uh, me writing an email to uh, to the folks over at uh, GMT, uh, I would have already done so. So, yeah, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to be contacting them saying, stop. I think it's worth it. I think this is a game... uh Andrew <laughs> would love to play. Um, Good. That's exactly who I had in mind. Um, but there's uh, here's the thing. Like everybody uh, who watches the show now thinks, okay, there's Andrew, but there's actually more than him. It's just he's been the most visual of them. But yeah, I uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, Andrew's the one who actually first turned me on to Nevsky. And uh, mm-hmm. like I said, this all happened right at the beginning of the pandemic. So yeah, yep. Life happens. To answer your other question, though, rules wise, it is not as elegant uh, or as simple as Twilight Struggle, but it's not it's not your typical GMT war game. It's got a Euro, I think, a Euro approachable rule book um, and it's got a playbook. So, again, you can set it up and play through the first whole turn and walk through the playbook. And that's how I learned the game. Uh, So it's it's easier to learn. Than it looks initially. It's going to be harder than Twilight Struggle, but uh, and there are some some rules in it that are a little bit difficult to keep track of. Uh, there are a lot of exceptions, particularly when it comes to adjacency. If you're going to spread, for instance, from one economic market into another, you have to be adjacent. You can't daisy chain, and so you can't you know move into one market and then in the same turn move into another adjacent market. But there are exceptions, and there are exceptions for how you can move into a fort, how you can d- repair a fort, uh, how you can take a fort from another player if it's damaged. Um, welcome, welcome to war games. Yeah, it's Chrome. Right? And, and right. as far as war games go, these exceptions are nothing. So uh, I, I wouldn't let this scare off any war gamers. However, there is someone on BGG. If you just search for um, adjacency in the threads there is someone who has summarized them all very nicely so i i printed that out and just keep it with my rule book now okay um and give me a link and i'll I'll put it in the show notes for folks as well yeah so that'll that'll be helpful for folks um nice hey and and the thing that's great about it one more thing (laughs) (laughs) no you're fine I, i love the enthusiasm this is awesome one more thing that i love about it is each turn you draw uh, different victory point tokens for each of those four areas. So you never know which area is going to be scoring zero, one, two, or three points. And you're going to be drawing out of the six commodities, three of them every turn. And so you never know which ones of those are going to score either. And I've seen some people who have complained saying that's really random. I had you know cornered the market on fish and fish never came up for the last half of the game. And my opponent had gotten all of the tobacco market and they just rode that out well actually tobacco goes down in points as the game goes on can you hear me no no sorry sorry i didn't mean throw you off i said so don't do those things like don't don't i mean diversify and and don't let them get a 
stranglehold on it, right? Exactly. That's my point. Um, <laughs> I, I look at that as one of the great strengths of the game is that you cannot give up on any area. You can't just say, I'm going to give up on the Caribbean because the next three turns might have uh, tobacco and sugar. And it, it makes you... It makes you pay attention to everything. And again, that's what I loved about Twilight Struggle is you you never know when those scoring cards are going to come up. So you couldn't give up anything. And you always felt like you were trying to hold that damn back everywhere. And I get that same feeling from this game. I'm in. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just heard a bunch of people just clicking saying, OK, where <laughs> can I? And I imagine it's still available from GMT directly as well. So I yeah, I would imagine so. All right. So there you go. That has got to be the most in-depth have been playing in the history of heavy cardboard, and I think we're better for it. Um, that was awesome, seriously, because I think that's a lot of games that folks are going to be excited about and that may or may not have been on their radar, and I think uh, I think you explained it well, and I, yeah, and I mean, you and I are bad influences on one another. Okay, all right, hey, that works. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh as far as acquisitions what uh what have you acquired of late so i discovered this crazy thing on bgg called a math trade which are fantastic i haven't done one in years but yeah math trades are awesome dude oh, i so unpack it for folks yeah, I for those of you don't who don't know what a math trade is, I had been trying to trade away a, a handful of games that I just didn't want on my shelf anymore uh, for a long time, and I would reach out to people who would be matched with me in the trade mechanic on on BGG that would have something I wanted. This was something they wanted, and it was really hard to get people to respond and to get the trade worked out. I don't know why that is, why why it's so difficult to line those things up in a one to one fashion, but I've I've had limited success with it. Uh, a math trade is where you submit your games to this math engine and you once all the games are submitted, you go into the spreadsheet, this, this really awesome web utility that makes it very easy and you just look at the games that you've offered up and then you look at all the games that are available and you say, yes, I would be willing to trade this game for this game. And you do that with your whole collection. And then what it does is it works out multi-person trades between all of the different users so that... I simply take the game, like if I wanted to trade game A for game B, it would, it wouldn't require game B, the owner of game B, to want game A. Instead, it would just put my game in the system. And as long as somebody else wanted that, and it's somewhere along the way somebody wanted to, to make a trade for the, the guy who owns game B, his game could come into the system. It will work that all out magically. And uh, I use this to get rid of probably 10 games that I, I just didn't want anymore. And I didn't know that I was going to get all of them. I ended up with 12 in the last math trade, which I'll tell you is a pain to try and mail out uh, during a pandemic. Don't even talk to me about mailing stuff. (laughs) Oh, it is the bane of my existence. Yes, I I get that. I feel your pain now. I hate it every second of that. Oh, oh. So I, I got a number of games in a math trade and I'll, I'll just list them off here. Uh, But I got Newton, uh, Blackout Hong Kong, Spirit Island, Peak Oil, Ground Floor, Cavum, which is entirely based on the uh, uh, heavy cardboard recommendation, uh, Aura at Labora, and Concordia. And then a couple other smaller games. Uh, War Chest is, is a smaller abstract. Um, and I got uh, on tour to play. We were doing some road tripping with my kids this summer, so we got that to play in the car. But those are the main games that we, we acquired. And I have not played any of those yet. 
and I have got a lot of work ahead of me. Well, the good news is uh, you're going to have some of those available uh, in a future math trade. Um, some of them, though, I imagine you're going to be keeping. Uh, or at Labora, I have no doubt that you're going to love. Uh, the solo and the multiplayer is excellent on that. Um, Concordia is popular with everyone not named Edward. Here's the thing. I think Concordia is a fantastic game. I just don't like it. It doesn't excite me. There's no, I have no ill will towards it. Like I realize I'm the weird one in this, but Concord, I like, man, like if you wanted, if you were to say, okay, what is your quintessential milk toast game? It'd be Concordia for me. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's a really, really good game, but it's just impossible for me to get excited about. I don't know why. It's it's a game. It's For me, it's like Power Grid. It's a game that when I am playing it, I think this is really good. This is a good game, and I'm excited about playing it. But then when I put it back on the shelf, um, I can't describe it to people in a way that makes it sound exciting to me. So I, I, I got it out and I said, all right, this is a game about trading goods in the Mediterranean. <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this before. Yeah. And, and we had a good time with it, but it's, and I, that is one that I have gotten to the table once. Uh, it's one that I'm, I would like to play again. I'm glad it's in my collection, but I put it right there with power grid. I feel like it's a good game when you're playing it, but it's not one I ever think about reaching for. I think that's a perfect way to put it. Like, I enjoy playing Concordia when I play it. But I, like, when I'm looking in the library, like, okay, what games do we want to play? I gloss right past it. And it, it, kill, it, it kills some of the folks that are listening because some of the folks that are in our local group, that's their favorite game. Hi, Shrey. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'll play it. I just, it, it's just hard for me to get excited about. It. And I don't know why. It's not the game's fault. It's mine, obviously. Ground Floor, by the way, I think you'll really enjoy the uh, the the solo on as well. Assuming this is the second edition that you got, because mm-hmm. uh, the first edition doesn't have solo. Uh, yeah, Ground Floor, I thoroughly enjoy that game. Uh, multiplayer, and come to find out, solo as well. And Aura Labor is just one of my all-time favorites. If it had actual expansions like one or maybe if we got greedy two it would be my all-time favorite uh uve rosenberg game so i'm excited to hear that because my favorite rosenberg for years now has been lahav and it's not to say anything bad about agricola but if you put those two next to each other i would prefer to play lahav and depends on my mood but yeah i mean those are the three for me yep for for uve rosenberg so or at labor lahav and and uh Agricola are yes. Just the answer is yes. Yep. So I feel you. Um, good stuff. Yeah, if you have, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Well, uh, Cavum obviously is good, and it's just it can be chaotic, but it's 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 fun game. Good, good game. It's, it's mean though. So I'll comment on on Newton and Blackout Hong Kong briefly because I watched the streams, and I don't know that I would be exaggerating to say that they were greeted with something less than enthusiasm. Don't like either one of them. Right. And I think this might be a way to highlight the value of 
these heavy cardboard streams because when I watched them, even oh, yeah, though please no please even though it was clear you guys didn't like these, uh, I watched them and I thought that's a game I'm gonna like, and I, I really enjoyed. I've got Newton to the table just as a solitaire game. I've played it, ran through it twice. It plays really, really quickly as a solitaire game. Um, but man, that is a a great little puzzle. It's it's a hard game, and I don't know how fun it would be as a multiplayer if I have to sit and and worry about APing, uh, going through some analysis paralysis on my turn, or waiting for somebody else to do that. But if you've got time to sit and think about it, that's a great little puzzle. Um, and Blackout Hong Kong, I haven't gotten to the table yet as a solitaire game or multiplayer, but uh, it looks like something I would like. And we'll see if it's right or not. But um, even a game that you guys clearly didn't like, uh, you played it in a way where it, it highlighted, I think, what its strengths were. And you didn't like those strengths. Those are things that I thought were pretty compelling. And I think that's where you guys add some real value. Yeah, I appreciate it because that tells me mission accomplished because my job is not to sell a game, right? When we're streaming these, I don't get anything out of it, whether it's sponsored. Obviously, I'm getting paid for sponsored playthroughs, but those are no different than our regular non-sponsored playthroughs. I don't care if people buy it or not. I literally, it makes no difference to me. My job is to highlight the game and you know what? Let you make your own decisions. So the fact that you can watch us play games that for one reason or another, we have conveyed that we aren't really enjoying the game or it's not our favorite or fill in the right word. Uh, but you found reasons that, oh, no, no, actually, those things that bother you don't bother me or that you find as a weakness, I find as a strength or whatever it may be, then mission accomplished. I, I mean, whether it's if I've helped turn you on or turn you off from a game that would otherwise not be a good fit for you or that is a good fit, then Yes, that's my goal. It's not to sway your opinion, because I'll be honest, play what you dig. I couldn't care less if you enjoy game X, Y, or Z. I am not, you know what? Age of Steam, my number one game. There are a lot of people out there that don't like it. Okay, don't play it. Not a problem. You think, uh, uh, Jess really doesn't like Age of Steam because it makes no thematic sense to her. Same with Martin, because why the hell am I doing the most inefficient route possible to make the this good travel actually further? That's stupid. It makes no sense. It's a dumb game. You know what? That's a fair, fair point. Still my number one game, but they're not wrong. It's just not for them. I'm okay with that. So yeah, that's a really huge compliment you paid me there. So I really appreciate that, man. <laughs> Yeah, and block out Hong Kong. Here's the thing. So, so uh, John gets games. So John and I, on occasion, w whenever we see each other at conventions or whatever, we'll you know we're we're friendly. We'll say hey, whatever. We'll talk. Um, there have been times to where he's watched, like if my streams have come out before his playthroughs or whatever. Um, we'll sometimes watch each other's to help you know flatten the curve a little for our our learning of it. I mean. Why reinvent the wheel if you don't have to? So it's it's a compliment, I think, to both of us that we we inadvertently help each other like that. And it's cool. So I used his from Blackout Hong Kong. And as I was watching it and I was learning the game and everything, I was like, yeah, there's dude, I'm I'm excited about this. This sounds really good. And then I played it. Yep. 
<laughs> uh, and the thing is, is it wasn't just me. Like it was, it was the whole group. Just they were like, "This is really cool," and then it just, it just felt, it felt hollow. And it was kind of like what you had said in reference to a game earlier. That every time I've played it, I've enjoyed it a little bit less. So that's just not a good game for me. But it doesn't mean it's not a good game for somebody out there. So there you go. Yeah, good stuff. So what have you uh, acquired? Uh, well, sort of two and a half things. I mean, we could go back because it's been a day since the podcast. But uh, I'm. it's funny. I'm looking over there at Rurik right now, and it's like, hey, what's up? I hear that's really good. I want to get that played. Uh, so one arrived today. I had, I've been chomping at the bit for a long, long time for what some people, and by some I mean a lot of people, say is the best solo game, Hard Stop. And I have an older edition of Mage Knight. And I've been like, you know, if I'm going to actually stream this or review it or do anything with it, I really, really need to get a copy of the Ultimate Edition. And it arrived today. And I am really stoked about it. It is a way bigger box than I thought it was going to be, by the way. And so I reached out to WizKids, and uh, they were like, oh, absolutely, yeah, we'll send it to you. Um, so I, yeah, it's not out of the shrink yet. Literally, it showed up like, four o'clock today and i was preparing for the podcast so i have not opened it up i haven't anything so i'm i'm really really excited about it and uh, so talking about that i have heard that ricky royal on box of delights did an amazing how to play on uh mage night and so again not gonna reinvent the wheel thank you ricky when I go to learn this, I'm going to be using his videos for that uh, before I do a teach and playthrough of it. Um, and also, the way I teach solo games is totally different than the way I teach multiplayer games. I don't like sitting here talking for 45 minutes by myself uh, going over how to play a game. But when there's other people in the room, I have no problem with that. It's really weird. I don't know. So I teach as I go with the solo as opposed to the way I do on a multiplayer. But anyway, Mage Knight, super, super stoked about this one. Uh, As you another one, uh, <laughs> I'll interrupt. Uh, I might be one of those people uh, who say that is the best solitaire game ever. Uh, if I were to rank him, it is my number one. It's, I think it's fantastic. I have never played it multiplayer, in fact. I, I've heard that from a lot of people. I've heard that, look, it's a one or two player game. And and this is a game, I'll just sum it up like this. There was a night where I went to bed and I had finished a turn. And in this game, you assault cities. And the cities have these guardians that are, are guarding the cities. And I was going up against one and I thought, I don't have time for this right now. I've got to go. It was 11 o'clock. I had to get to bed. And I woke up at two in the morning. And I could not get that out of my head. And I thought, I've just got to get up and go assault that stinking city. And I got up and I went and played that turn. And it took me a half hour to figure it all out and how I was going to do it. And uh, I had to, I just had to play it. I had to get out of bed and go do it. And I came back to bed and my wife said, what were you doing? And I, I said, work. <laughs> 
because I, I didn't what want to. What are you wearing, I, Jake from State Farm? Yeah, no, I hear you. Yep. <laughs> I just didn't want to admit that I, I had to get out of bed and play this turn on this board game and on my desk in there because it was driving me crazy. Um, that, That's awesome. That was one experience. And the other one I had was assaulting one of the final cities. And I went into that turn and it took me, and this says probably more about me than it says about the game. It took me 45 minutes to figure out the order in which I was going to play things how I was going to use my my mana crystals and how I was going to use my spells. I used every single thing that I possibly could to take down that city. And I can't think of if I was short one point, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I had to run through that three or four times to make sure that I actually could do it. And when I was done, I went and for the first time wrote like a session report on BGG and said, you have got to see this turn I just pulled off. Um, it's It's a great game. It tells a great story. It has a great puzzle for each hand that you play. Um, it's got deck management. So you, you've got to figure out which cards you just drew. You'd have to know what's coming up in your deck so that you know what to do now and what to wait for later. Um, it's very thematic. And I have played that more than almost any solitaire game. And I just can't imagine anything even surpassing that on my list. As far as solitaire games go, it's great. <laughs> I mean, this blows me away uh, talking to somebody that has played, like I said, like D-Day at Omaha Beach and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I have heard that Mage Knight is just it. It is just it. And let's stop for a second and go down yet another rabbit hole. Vlada Shavadal, is there a more, honestly, is there a more amazing designer that the, none of his games are alike? Like they are, how do you come up? You have Mage Knight, you have Through the Ages, you have Dungeon Pets, you have Dungeon Lords, you have, and God, I, I shouldn't have started this without a list in my head, but there are so many different games that are nothing alike one another that I don't know that there's another designer out there that does that like he does. The breadth and scope. And nails it so much. Yeah. And they're all they're all so different and they're all so good. I think you can design different kinds of games, but to do them all at such a high level is is incredible to me. To go from a civilization game without a map that might be the best civilization game out there. Uh, no, 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 no. S- not not maybe. <laughs> it is. Let's be clear. It is. I mean antiquity is a close one. Okay, I agree. All right, uh, all right, we can we can be friends again. Okay, but all yes, right, good. yeah, it, it it's fantastic. And and by the way, if anyone has never played the app on that, you are missing out because it is very well done. It is, it is. So code names: Tosh Kalar, uh, Galaxy Ages, uh, Galaxy Trucker, Dungeon Pets, Mage Knight, Space Alert, just and going way back, Prophecy, just. Damn, I mean, and and he's it, yeah, it's it's impressive. So yeah, I'm I'm super excited. I really am. That's that's going onto the shelf out here. So it's a reminder to me that I want to get that played soon. Yep. The only thing that I'll mention about Mage Knight is, and, and I don't know that they've changed this in the Ultimate Edition, but the rule book is strangely organized. It has a, if I remember right, a rule book and a playbook, but the playbook is not. Uh, something that can be independent from the rule book. It actually splits the rules up between those two different books. So you do do a lot of flipping back and forth and it is pretty rules heavy, but uh, I don't think that 
is such a detriment that it it has anything to do with how much I love the game. All right. Well, excellent. So yeah, that that arrived today. And uh, two others, uh, Petrocore Cows, uh, the prototype of that, um, and then uh, which very small box, the opposite end of the spectrum there from Mage Knight. And then something else that arrived recently um, completely out of the blue, and I still know nothing about it because I haven't gotten it played yet. Uh, it's a game from Foxtrot Games and Renegade uh, called The Search for Planet X. It's it. I, I looked it up on BGG. I mean, it's it's rated eight point three, uh, and it's got like two hundred and fourteen ratings. I don't know if it was a Kickstarter or uh, it's pretty lightweight, two and a half on BGG out of five. Um, apparently, a little deduction action point game, but play solo. So we'll see. Uh, but yeah, the, so that arrived. Um, that's about it. I mean, I didn't want to go too too far back because I mean. There's been a number of games, but yeah, that that's of the recent variety there. Um, and also, you recently got Empire of the Sun, too, didn't you? Oh, goodness, yes. I, I forgot about this one. Um, I have wanted this game for a long time uh, because Mark Herman is one of my favorite designers. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed almost everything he's done. And I have frankly been intimidated by this game because I've read enough people who have said this game is fantastic, but it's just too much. Uh, For those who don't know, it's a card-driven hex encounter war game that simulates the Pacific theater of World War II, the entire Pacific theater for the entire war. Um, And I've, I've really wanted to get into it, and it was finally reprinted, and I convinced my wife to get it for my birthday, which means I ordered it and gave it to her and said, you should give this to me for my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's not how gifts work, people. True, but (laughs) it worked in this case. Okay. Uh, um, anyway, she hates it when I do that, but, uh, I, I really wanted to get into this game and I've just started reading the rules and punching the counters. Uh, and it's one I'm really excited about. I hope that in a year from now, if you were to say, what's your favorite game, I would say it's empire of the sun. And I don't know if that'll be true or not, but I, I have a really high hope for this game. Uh, because as I said, the, the, the designer that it comes from what he has said about it, uh, what others have said about it, I, I have no reason to think that it's not one I will in, not enjoy. There were some double negatives there. That's okay. We we know what you meant. Yeah, it's, it's good. It, it's one judge. that I really look forward to, and I and I hope that it's not such a burden rules wise and strategy wise that it's it's going to be outside of my time limit. But man, I'm I'm glad I have it right now. What I'm about to say, take with a grain of salt. Okay, but. <sighs> Vital Lacerda once described Lisboa to me as, well, it's not that hard a game. You play a card, you do a thing, you draw a card. Okay, technically you're not wrong, but there's, you know, maybe, you know, A through L steps in between all of that, right? So designers have been known to say, oh, no, 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 no. It's really, really simple. Now, that said... When I was uh, uh, beating um, Mark and Jess at the aforementioned Churchill game previously, when we were at uh, at Mark's place out on the Cape, uh, he has a, a, a big, a giant, like a, a like a like a board, not even a boardroom, like a war room table 
in his war room there. And he had a giant oversized uh, map of Empire of the Sun, like feet by feet, right? The huge map here. And he just keeps it on his table there. It's set up. And I was like, all right, Mark, while I'm here, I said I would be remiss if I did not. How intimidated should I be by this game? Because I would really like to be able to, you know, show it off on the show. I'd like to be able to talk about it. This and that. And he was like, give me 10 minutes and I'll teach you how to play Empire of the Sun. <laughs> and I kind of like the one eye open, like, sure, Mark. Sure you will. But okay. It's Mark Herman. I'm not going to argue with the man. Not in his own house. Just had dinner with him. <laughs> Did kick his ass at church yet. But I digress. Uh, no, no. Mark and I are, are, are good friends. And I was like, seriously? He's like, yeah. He says... Obviously, I'm not going to go over all the minutiae of everything, but I'm going to hit the high, the, the main concepts. And by the end of this, you would at least be able to understand the basics of how to play. I was like, all right, go for it. So he taught me and Jess how to play it. Now, how much of that did I retain? Because I never actually, you know, played the game after that yet. Almost nothing. But my point is, 10, 15 minutes, and he's like, you can be up and running. It's really... It, now, there is minutia, and there is, uh, you know, some knowing the deck and all of that, just like in a Twilight Struggle, that aspect. Um, but again, it all depends on how high a level play you really want to get to. Um, and the thing that amazes me is I see Mark posting on Twitter all the time about his latest Empire of the Sun game. Man never gets tired of it. That's a credit to the game. I mean, and and I'll be honest, that's probably the thing that drove me most to get it was hearing him talk about the game that he says this is the game I designed because this is the game I want to play. Which I, I mean, I can't imagine a designer playing the game ten years after it's come out the way that he plays it and interacting with the community the way that he does. So that's that's really exciting. Yeah, I I mean. He he said he'll come on to the show and like teach the game and everything. And then the pandemic happened. That was supposed to happen this summer. He and I were he was going to come over and we were going to do that. Unfortunately, life happens. But uh, yeah, once uh, once and again, Mark is getting up there in age a bit. And he has said that he is basically pretty locked down until uh until things have pretty much passed or there's a cure vaccine whatever um so it still might be a day or two uh with that and yes theoretically i could do it via skype but when he has a summer house on the cape i'm gonna just have him over at the studio and do a proper like so yeah. yeah i'm excited about that um and it's 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 one that's been on my shelf forever for much the same reason as you um and i just for many of the reasons you mentioned earlier. It's just, it's a really big game. And now that I actually have access to Mark Herman, yeah, I'm going to wait on that. I'll just wait until Mark is available and hook that up. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm glad games like that exist that are hard and are difficult and have all of the, the hairy, sharp edges included and all of the detail and the exceptions that make the games great once you know them. Uh, I'm one that. I mean, I understand why people have a hard time with Feudum. I have only played it, uh, you know, once at HeavyCon a couple of years ago. But I'm glad it exists. I'm glad that there are some games that are not developed 
to the point where they're easy to play. But for the people that really want to dig deep into it and turn this into a game that they they spend a lot of time on, um, there's a place for that. And I, I think this 100%. is probably one of them. Yes, yes, and a million times yes. I like rough edges, and I don't want super polished games. And yeah, I echo those sentiments so much although i not necessarily agree on the feudum part no no i'm i'm joking i'm joking i'm joking i really like feudum i really do i just don't ever want to teach that damn game again i don't blame you um and i'll be honest i do think it needed development uh, that wasn't the designer but i think there are some things in that game that are tremendous and if i can play feudum without having to teach feudum i'm in sign me up yep that's how i feel about how i felt about cataclysm uh a a game a while ago it's it's one of these similar games about cataclysm i'm actually getting putting that on my trading block and this is a little off topic but it's a game that has a 40 page gmt double column no pictures no examples rule book and it's it's great to play if you can get people into it, but I can't teach that game ever again. And I can't uh, imagine myself finding people who know how to play it. So uh, as much as I love it, it's, it's just not going to stick on myself anymore. Yeah. There, I mean, there are games that I can appreciate even if they're not for me, if you know, like I, I went to uh, WBC one year world board game uh, championships and there is an entire floor there that is dedicated to monster war games and there's an entire convention called uh consim or or monster con out in arizona that is nothing but monster war games and by monster i mean 17 square feet or 17 linear feet of map uh, on given games and to where people won't even finish a game that they start they're just playing it for you know a week or two or whatever there and I appreciate it and the passion and the enjoyment these guys get from it and gals uh, just it's not for me I realize that's never going to be something that I am going to get into at this point um, but I'm really really glad that games like that exist as well okay. so what's on your uh, what's on your uh, shopping list or your your um, future give to the wife to give me gift <laughs> Uh, list here. <laughs> oh, I just need to make sure that she doesn't listen to this podcast. All right. Not a problem. It's all right. <laughs> uh, so, so the games that I'm looking forward to that are on my anticipation list or on my shopping list are ones that I think are a little bit further out. Either I'm waiting for them on a Kickstarter or waiting for them to be published. Uh, one of them is the reprint for Polis, uh, a great two player game. I've played it one time and I would just love a copy of it. Uh, and it fortunately is being reprinted. So I'm, I'm looking it is, to that. and I I saw the uh, a prototype of that at Gamma, which is the very last thing before um, before the pandemic really hit. And ooh, that looked nice. Oh. It looked really nice. It looked really good. I'm excited about it. Really I, excited. It was supposed to be released at Gen Con, so it's coming soon. Yeah, I hope so. Um, another two player war game. It's a block war game that was on Kickstarter called this war without an enemy. And it's a block war game, uh, for the English civil war. Uh, and 
it's if if you like a game like Hammer of the Scots, I think this is probably one that is going to be targeting that same group. And so I've I've watched a couple of videos on this one. It's I don't think it's going to ship till later in the year, uh, but I'm really looking forward to playing that one. Um, on that note, the uh, uh, Unhappy King Charles is another uh, GMT uh, two-player war game that uh, got me... Well, no, I, I'm doing this backwards. I was listening, speaking of podcasts earlier, I was listening to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which is another fantastic podcast. And he... I have zero... Had zero knowledge and zero uh, interest in the English Civil Wars. No, no clue about them until I listened to the podcast and then Mike Duncan got me super into it uh, which then led me to Unhappy King Charles which I thoroughly loved as a two player war game highly recommend that one and now we have apparently this war without an enemy which is a block war game in the English Civil War sign me up so I, every time that GMT has anything on one of their forums about what they should reprint I always say let's make King Charles unhappy again. We need to have this game reprinted uh, because I've heard that, that it's it's a great two-player CDG that uh, a lot of people have enjoyed. And like I said, I just need him to reprint that one. I'll ask. No, I have no, I have no weight when it comes to GMT, but I, I, but yeah, I hear you. I didn't, I didn't know it was out of print. I just assume most everything's out of print uh, with GMT or in between printings because if there's enough demand, they'll reprint it. Yeah, and it's it's not on the P five hundred list as far as I know. So that's my problem with it. I would I would love to see that get on there. Okay, all right. Um, Let's see. So the other one is the Kanban reboot that's uh, being printed by Eagle Griffin Games from Vital Lacerda. I have never played that one. That is my only Lacerda that I have not played, and I've heard great things about it. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to see what the new edition looks like. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, with Ian's art, I'm looking. Yeah, yes. So, yep. yeah, it's one of those that I've, I've contemplated getting in the past. But when I knew that eventually Eagle Griffin was going to print it, I thought, why don't I just wait so that I don't have boxes that say Lacerda on them that are not the same size? <laughs> we are so OCD, uh, us board gamers. We are so particular about things. It, we really are. It's it's really funny. I mean, I, I say we because I'm included in that. I get that. I, that makes sense to me. I get it. Yep. Uh, and then I'm always looking for a copy of Napoleon's Triumph, uh, an old block war game, kind of block war game that I, I have offered the the gems of my collection, I think, to people that I've been trying to trade that to. And I can't get anyone to bite. And I, I don't think that there's any hope that that one's ever going to be reprinted. But one day I may just do a PNP and that will probably be the game uh, print and play on my own Uh because I, I don't know if I'm ever going to find a copy of that, but I've heard such great things about it that it keeps showing up on my list of games I really would like to have. So back in the day, uh, one of the things that I thoroughly... I like auctions. You may you may or may not know that about me. And one of the true joys in, early on in the hobby that I had, and honestly, if I still had the time, it would still be, is going to uh, in-person live auctions, uh, mm-hmm. board game auctions, usually at conventions. And there was one in Denver uh, for, I forget the name of the convention. It was a smaller one, but it was the biggest one in Denver. And the highlight 
it was always uh, either it was the Friday of the convention, right around um, Valentine's Day, was uh, the board game auction. And I got a copy of Napoleon's Triumph for something like $85, which is like criminal. Like, that's so cheap. And just for much the same reason as you that, you know what, I've heard that, and this is a Bowen Simmons, right? Um, and I believe she still uses that for her official, like, public or designer name. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have heard nothing. The next negative thing I hear about Napoleon's Triumph will be the first, except that it's got a bit of a learning curve. Which, if you're talking about a war game, I think is just part yeah. of the pudding. Exactly, right? <laughs> I mean, you it's, it's almost like a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the only other war game that I think really approaches Napoleon's Triumph in, in terms of what I think it offers to the block war game system is something like Sekigahara where uh, it, it just feels like you can get into it. Once you start playing it, it all makes sense. The board is beautiful. The gameplay is really good. Um, I, I've, I'm in the same boat as you. The first negative thing I hear about it will be the first other than it will never be reprinted from what I understand, but never say never. Right. And I mean, you can always get a copy. It's just a matter of how much is it? Are you willing to shell out for said copy? Like I, I've, I haven't been actively looking, mind you, but I've always keep an eye out for a copy of Horus from Theta Games. Like that's that's a game that I'm just never going to end up getting. The one or two times I've ever seen it for sale, it's like four hundred or six hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to spend that. But it's just super rare. I get it. But if you want it bad enough. But yeah, um, you know what? Either either at HeavyCon or maybe I can just ship it to you. This is a borrow. This one's a borrow, though. <laughs> well, let's, I'd, I'd have to make sure we have got the pandemic over with so that I can get it to the table a bunch of times. Um, but yeah, I'd love to play it. Let's let's put that on the uh, the list at oh, HeavyCon when that happens. Yeah, I was going to say, or, you know, when you come out to Boston, we should actually like get together and actually play some of these games. That'd be good. Or when I come back to Denver, because I got to get my uh, Marine Corps tattoo finished anyways, I got to get up there. So yeah, definitely. All right. What else? I know there's one more. There is, there's one more and it's, it's one that's been on the list for a while. It's a GMT game, Bayonets and Tomahawks. Uh, it's a, um, French Indian war game, two player CDG. It's supposed to be pretty simple and play pretty quickly, which uh, again is all relative when it comes to GMT war games. But uh, I've been looking forward to that. There's another guy in the G- in the uh, the war game Slack channel that has really been talking highly of it. So it's been on my P500 list for about a year. But that should be going to the printer sometime this year. We'll see. Is it, is it a new one upcoming? Mm-hmm. Okay, is it any, I mean, does it have anything in common other than the theme uh, with like a wilderness war or anything like that? I don't think so. Uh, And to be honest, there's not a whole lot of information available about it. We have a couple development blogs and I believe there's just a playtest map, but I don't even have a set of rules to look at yet. Uh, Just, yeah, here, take my money. I trust you. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, it's okay. one that the Volko Runki played and said he really enjoyed it and thought it was a great oh. design. So, <laughs> okay, I'll yeah, take I his word it. for it. I I, I got gotcha. you. Yep. All right, what are you Good looking stuff. for? 
Oh, well, I mean, we, we, we talked pretty in depth about one of them already, which is Imperial Struggle. Uh, another one is Fort, um, and I'm just a little bit uh, behind the curve on this. Everybody and their mother who's been playing Fort from Leader Games seems to really be enjoying that. So going to be getting a review copy of that one. And then another one that uh, I have heard a lot of talk about, but I really don't know a lot about the game itself, and that's Versailles 1919. Again, from Mark Herman online, I keep in, and Jeff Engelstein. So uh, I don't know a ton about it, except I am intrigued by the theme of it, plus Again, the names behind it. Exactly. I mean, that's on my list too, and for the exact same reason. I think it is somewhat related to uh, Churchill and uh, Pericles, the two other games. I think they call it the Great Statesman series, where you are debating. This is after World War One, obviously, mm-hmm. rather than World War Two. But you're debating various issues and then putting those issues into play on another half of the board. And that's really all that I know about it. But it's it's on my P500 list, so it will show up at my door unexpectedly, and I'll have to explain it to my wife at some point here in the next few months. All right, excellent. That's yeah. I'm, I'm glad you guys have that understanding of a relationship. So that's good. You know what? <laughs> she buys cowboy boots. It's all fair. Okay, that seems reasonable, right? I mean, those are probably more expensive than uh, than games. However, the sheer number of games versus cowboy boots, I, I imagine that ratio is a little bit skewed. Yes, but uh, fortunately. She also has a lot of boots. We'll say that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All yeah. right. <laughs> All right. So because this episode is running insanely long, but I am, I'm loving this for real. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with one more thing. Um, the looking forward to playing. Like, what, what are you chomping at the bit? Regardless, imagining there is no pandemic, you know, indulge me, people. Just You can have people over, you can get together, that type thing. Imagining that, what would that list be? So I am, uh, no surprise, I'm looking forward to playing Imperial Struggle more. <laughs> <laughs> but there are a couple games that are on my shelf of shame that I really need to get off. And one of those, in fact, I've got it right here. Oh, Hands in the Sea. He's Hands in the Sea. I have had this for about a year and a half, um, and I have not played it a single time, and I have really got to get that remedied because I hear great things about it. And I watched the stream that you and Andrew did, and I thought, the whole time, this is a game I need to play. So I, I look forward to it. It's a it's kind of a reboot of the uh, A Few Acres of Snow from Martin Wallace as far as I understand, there's no flaws in the game like some people alleged were present in a few acres of snow. Uh, but it's uh, the what the Carthage uh, Roman Wars. It and, is. Yep. It Punic War. Yep. yep. So it's it's one that I think is going to be awesome. I have, again, high hopes for this one. That's on my list. Uh, I also have the Men of Iron Tripack coming from GMT. That is a Hex Encounter medieval war game that is. Uh, I'd say that it's on the level of complexity, maybe a step higher than your commands and colors. Uh, so if it's if you're looking for like an intro level game, this is just from what I understand, packed with content. There are just dozens of maps. It's three games 
reprint it as one. Uh, and so that should come. I'm a little bit uh, hesitant because if you go on the heavy cardboard slack, you'll see people trying to fit all of the counters that they've punched into the box. And it's some like insane number of trays that it takes. So the, for me, this is the one like time period that I just can't get into. I just medieval combat just never I just can't do it I just it mm. so hey the nice thing is I can just pass those over yeah so that's okay <laughs> and that's that's honestly what's great about wargaming I think is there are some conflicts that I've looked at that I I don't have interest in and I don't have to play those because there is plenty of content out there in the other ones that I am interested in so yeah skip it if you don't like it yep uh, the last one I'll mention is undaunted North Africa. So Undaunted Normandry, excuse me, Normandy was a kind of a deck building game that uh, played out on a map, uh, kind of a squad level uh, war game style game. And Undaunted North Africa is the follow up to that. And it incorporates vehicles uh, and a bunch of different gameplay gameplay mechanisms that from what I've heard does nothing but improves on the original system. And some people may have heard me say this before, but I considered Undaunted Normandy to be my lighter uh, game of the year last year. I, I loved that game. That's another one that I think can be as deep as you want. There are a lot of really cool things about the way you build the deck and manage your deck in that game. That uh, As I played it more, I, I found that it really is more about managing your hand and making sure that you hunker down when you need to, that you are bolstering when you need to. You've got to watch what the other player is doing and know what's in their deck. Uh, and there are all kinds of scenarios for that. I think the be book patient. comes with... Yeah. Don't just run into the middle and start shooting. <laughs> uh, but there are all kinds of scenarios other than the, I think it's 10 that come with the game. There are a lot of people on BGG that have set up their own. And I let my son, again, the eight-year-old that plays with me, uh, set up his own. And it will not surprise you at all to know that he destroyed me in those scenarios because they weren't exactly fair. You know what? I, I bet you they were, and you're, that's just sour grapes. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, he tried to assure me that they're fair. But he's like, you just have to make it over here to this through my ambush, and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So maybe maybe not entirely balanced. Yep. That's all right. So those are the games uh, most immediately that I am looking forward to playing. How about you? What have you got left on your list of games to play? Oh, man, it's it's hundreds long. I mean, at any given time, it always is. And it's funny how it all depends on my mood, right? I mean, I feel like this is an ever-morphing list, but I want to, again, this is going under the assumption that I actually can do this because some of these are just not practical right now, right? Uh, but Nevsky would definitely be up on that list, um, even if that's not going to happen anytime soon. But uh, in no particular order, D-Day at Omaha Beach, that is still uh, the biggie for me. That is that is still the, the, the number one biggest mage night now that it's here. that That's going to be up there as well. Comancheria, um, so far, those are all solo games, I realize. Uh, 4X actually from Hollenspiel. That's a game that I was really super excited about because it is the weirdest, most dry, terrible theme in the history of anything. And the back of the box is probably my all-time favorite like description of a game oh, it's, in history. It's priceless. It really is. And so I was 
don't laugh, but there are a lot of days, and I, I, I mean multiple times in a week, I'll go into my library and I'll just kind of look around and let my eyes just wander and be like, what games do I really want to get played for the show? Whether it's for a review now for the podcast or, or on the streams. And I kept ended up at 4X and I was like, I don't think anybody, and then I mentioned it and there are a lot of people here locally that are like oh yeah and here's the other cool thing that i realized if it doesn't have hidden information doesn't have to be part of our local group it can be anybody via skype as long as they can see the info on the table here and there's no hidden info so all of a sudden i have a really big group of people i can pull from so that's cool but forex uh uh currency trading uh i played it but my 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 enthusiasm waned and then by the end of the game my enthusiasm was ramping back up again and then life happened and it it just got lost in the shuffle so 4x is definitely high on that list of games that i want to get rurik now honestly i was like it looks good but i don't know but hearing your excitement about it it's gone up and that's out here uh in the group uh tinner's trail Hmm. is another one and that's a what i call the the like the shorter martin wallace games Mm -hmm. this would be a a borderline thinky filler but i think it's probably i don't know that i would consider it filler i think it's probably one step too far uh, game length wise but it is just no one ever talks about it i mean it's an older martin wallace but i thought it was phenomenal uh when i played it back when i was in denver played it multiple times we never streamed it so that that's one that i definitely want to get to the table um and i guess honestly other than that it's a lot of the uh, ion game design games that i haven't streamed yet so like neanderthal bios genesis uh greenland so there you mm-hmm. go. That and, and I guess there is at the Gates of Loyang as well. Um, is also over there. You know that's a game Gates of Loyang. We played that just before the uh, the shutdown. Um, I hadn't played that for years, and we ended up breaking that out and just played a two player game of it. And it's surprisingly still a good a good game. I don't think it ranks up there with the other Rosenberg games in that top tier that we talked about earlier. But it's it's one that I do enjoy quite a bit. It, it's I, I think I've only played it once, maybe twice, and I remember enjoying it. It's always well thought of, and I know that the solo aspect or the solo game is supposed to be really good. Mm-hmm. So that's one that I, yeah, I wanted to play. So I brought it out of the library and put it in here. So it's constantly in front of me telling me, hey, you need to play me. Well, if you're looking for the right mood to play each of those games, um, I would suggest that you wait to play D-Day at Omaha Beach until you're in the mood just to get your face kicked because it's a tough one, but I love it. And that, and that, that's that's most days. I'm okay with that. I expect <laughs> to lose every solo game that I ever play. And oh, there is one other that I want to mention uh, is Nemo's War. I know I've streamed it. I know I've played it, but it's one that I, I mean, it's got a really cool story. And it's a really good game, and I really want to play that again, just for me. Yeah, there you go. I, I think that's in my my top ten solitaire list. Uh, it's 
it's one of those games that you play it at first and you think it's great. And then you play it a couple more times and you think this is a big random mess. And then you start to see really how the strategy works is how you populate the ocean and um, the, a lot of the choices you make and especially what your your role is. What are the win conditions for how you chose to play the game? Uh, and it becomes a little bit deeper than I think you initially appreciate. So it's it's one that I, I like more the more I play it. Good. Yay. I'm glad because, man, that and that thing is so pretty. It yeah. is so good. Ian o- O'Toole did such an amazing job. Uh, with the artwork on that. Yeah, so good. All right. Well, um, this is officially going to be the longest episode in history because uh, we didn't even get to clinic yet, which is amazing. And that's awesome. How many games have we talked about tonight? I mean, seriously. <sighs> I Probably 50. Yeah. And I, that was unexpected, but that's awesome. And I think people are going to be really, really... Uh, I hope they enjoy this. And if not, then, well, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. And if you do enjoy it, good news. You guys are going to uh, get a bonus episode. And by bonus episode, I mean we're going to be cutting this into two episodes because it is really, really late here now. And this has gone really, really long. And so what we are going to do is we are going to uh, kill it here and join us the following episode with our actual review of Clinic Deluxe from Albin Viard. So, to be continued, I guess, for the first time in history. So, episode 146, part one. Yeah. All right. Good stuff, dude. That was awesome. awesome. That was fun. So, uh, yeah. Um, uh, JT, thanks for thanks for joining me tonight. And uh, I guess I will talk to you next week. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Dude, I, I would sit and talk about board games for hours. So uh, you do my favor. You do my family a favor because then they don't have to hear me talk about them. <laughs> Scratching that itch, right? And got to get your words out. And now they don't have to listen to it. Yep. I get that. I get that. We were just on vacation with the rest of my extended family. And we were playing a game. Uh, just a, I can't even remember what the board game was. But it was we were playing hearts. We love playing hearts. Oh, I love hearts. And it's just been a tradition in my family. We play it all the time when we're on vacation. And I shot the moon twice in a row. And the second one was the first one that I had a good hand. The second one, though, was really good gameplay, I think, on my part. And I started explaining it, what what I had done and how I was watching the game go. And my oldest daughter walked in and goes, he's got his I'm explaining a game voice on right now. And uh, everybody kind of laughed because... I, I just kind of get in a mode when I'm talking about games. I love the the strategy and everything that goes into them. So hopefully it you wasn't annoying. No, I, you have no idea how grateful I am to hear this truly because I love board games. I talk about them for a living. That's fine. But I imagine that is how Jess is with me regarding me talking about poker and talking about poker hands and huh. I I'm just glad to know that I am not alone that I have loved ones that have to endure oh he's got that voice on I know that so thank you for that thank you that that warms my heart JT I appreciate that <laughs> it is 
It is. I am. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's awesome. And, um, honestly, uh, before we bug out real quick, uh, I wanted to mention a couple things to everybody listening since this is going to be coming out, uh, early next week. Uh, and these are the most timely things. So, uh, first off golden elephant award, by the time y'all hear this, uh, finalists will be announced. So what I'm wanting to know is what are your picks for finalists for the 2019 golden elephant award? What would they be? And what would be your winner? So, uh, I'm definitely interested to hear what people think on that. Also, uh, girl stampede. So Jess has been, uh, hosting a show on heavy cardboard that highlights women within the industry and their roles, as well as their stories, uh, whether they are, uh, publishers, designers, uh, content creators, whatever. And I, I, I'm happy that she has chosen to do that. And I think it's cool that she's chosen to, uh, use that outlet here on heavy cardboard to, uh, highlight women in the hobby. So that's been, that's been really, really cool. Uh, that's, yeah, it's been great to hear. And so check that out and definitely recommend you guys supporting Jess with girl stampede. And the last thing I, a lot of people, uh, complain I've read, uh, that they don't like hearing me talk about poker a whole lot. So, okay, you win. That's fine. I'm starting a poker vlog, so if you guys are interested in that, it's going to be basically me doing a bunch of interviews that you guys are familiar with, uh, conversations with Heavy Cardboard, but this is going to be across the felt with Edward Euler. So if you are interested in hearing the interviews with various folks within the poker industry or poker community, I guess, and poker hands and strategy discussion and stuff. I'm going to be doing that over on uh, my YouTube channel. Uh, that's going to be uh, Edward Euler, U-H-L-E-R. So check that out if you were so inclined. Oh, and we got a dog. His name's Cooper. More on that later. So to be continued next week. All right, then thanks again, JT, for coming on, man. And thanks for being willing to, uh, uh, well, I guess make this a two-parter. So, all right. And I am Edward. Thanks, everybody. Be kind to one another. Stay safe. Wear your mask. Social distance. And we'll catch you all next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>